Once upon a time. Welcome to Australian Book Lovers. Your destination for imagination. big warm welcome to everyone and a huge thank you for joining us for the Australian Book Lovers Podcast, episode number 68. Our mission is to bring fabulous Australian and Indigenous literature that spans a whole range of genres to book lovers around the globe, as well as fantastic resources and information for passionate authors looking to write their next bestseller. I'm Veronica Strachan, aka V.E. Patton, fantasy, memoir and picture book writer, reader and one of your co-founders and hosts coming to you from Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung country today. And I am Darren Kesenko, dystopian science fiction and horror author, avid reader, of course, and one of your co-hosts and co-founders of Australian Book Lovers, coming to you today from Ghana country in what is still a way too chilly spring here in South Australia. I know. We, we just keep getting a few odd little slips of sunshine, not even whole days, but slips of sunshine and yeah there we go yes but still episode 68 that makes the sunshine regardless of the weather which is a beautiful thing so yeah i'm so happy to be here for episode 68 still getting closer to the uh you know the elusive mythology mythological <laughs> mythical <laughs> mythological <laughs> mythical episode hard to 100. get to and pronounce <laughs> yes this is it but i'm wondering um you know you got me kind of somewhat addicted now is there a yes. bingo call for 68 there is, in fact, a bingo call for 68, and I didn't like the one on my usual uh, slip, which is Saving Grace. That doesn't rhyme with 68, no. but I did find one that is Pick a Mate. Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds better. Yeah. Don't I, like I that think one. Saving yes. Grace is like a prayer. Prayer is religious. Yeah, religious don't like gambling. Gambling rhyme is. With 68. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> pick a mate. That's right. If you want to go to bingo, pick a mate. Yes. <laughs> go. Yeah. That's good. So that's a traditional bingo call for 68. There you go. Ah, well, episode 68, I've got a few little things about the number. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you know that? Well, I'll start with the number 68. Apparently signifies expressing your freedom in a harmonious way. Yeah, it is okay. also meant to express sensuality. Mm-hmm. idealism adventure family personal freedom and business so hmm i don't know harmonious uh, well i'm feeling a little bit in harmony today <laughs> with nature but um i am going on an adventure just in a few days which is good so yes. and that'll be wandering around in the uh flinders ranges and uh, under the stars and in the bush and so there'll be a little bit of personal freedom there and mm. hopefully coming back with ah who knows maybe some ufo tales some bunyip tales but uh, lots of inspiration for stories but uh yeah number six way but interestingly enough when it comes to mathematics and I know it's not always mm-hmm. the uh, most fascinating subject, although it has some beauty to it. Well, <laughs> mathematics nerds everywhere are going, boo, hiss, hiss. <laughs> well, yeah, well, no, but also, yay, yay, because I said it's something, it has, does have, it has beauty. But did you know that the number 68, this is quite interesting, actually, and here's the nerd of me coming out. Mm-hmm. 68 is the largest known number. That's, of all the numbers, the largest mm. known number to be the sum of two primes in exactly two different ways. So 68 can be uh, represented as 7 plus 61. Mm-hmm. It can also be represented as 31 plus 37. Ah. 
and I thought that's interesting and then I was looking and thinking yeah. really is there no other number moving forward in our super calculations apparently yeah. not although of course uh, as I did read in my nerdy little rabbit hole there are <laughs> rumblings of some people that don't quite believe it and so they do tend to uh, want further proof but anyway that's the number 68 but it looks like number 68 was somewhat of a cracking year for Australia Mm-hmm. And of course, we're coming through, you know, in my head, I wasn't born in 1968, I wasn't around yet. But in my head, I'm already imagining 68, you know, there's the rock and roll, there's music, there's the, the uh, you know, the marches and the, the protests and the art and the culture. So, but we'll start with, uh, I know in 1967, which was, uh, 67 was our last episode, obviously, uh, there was the dis- disappearance of Harold Holt, mm-hmm. uh, the Prime Minister. And so on the 4th of January in 1968, the search for Harold Holt, was actually officially called off in Victoria. Mm. So that marked uh, an end to a particularly uh, you know, famous incident. Now, members of English rock groups, including The Who and Small Faces, were escorted by police from a plane at, of course, Melbourne's Essendon Airport. Mm-hmm. Party pooper Melbourne, no. <laughs> oh, come on! After the pilot diverted the flight because of the bad, uh, the band's super bad behaviour. <laughs> so, right. I don't know what, if they got a sn- smack on the knuckles or anything, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's interesting. But, but, you know, The Who, as far as I know, were never little good boys. So I guess that's what you expect uh, when you throw them on a plane and send them down under. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the American evangelist Billy Graham began a tour of Australia. And, yeah, probably means nothing. Or it may have just been a bl- little interesting moment of time. But I'm wondering if that sowed some seeds. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> sowed some seeds for some of the more extravagant and, uh, shall we say, deceptive forms of uh, <laughs> religion here in Australia that uh, we might be able to see now if you just follow the multi-million dollar buildings and rock concerts. But anyway, that was in 1968. Interestingly enough, on the 8th of April, fluoridisation of Sydney's water supply began. Mm, controversial. It is. Um, mm. I still, obviously, today there's the, there's that great, uh, well, I wouldn't say conspiracy. There's a lot of people that believe that, that part of the reason for that was to uh, calcify our pineal gland mm. um, and therefore reduce the um, impact of the, third, of the third eye or our third eye on our consciousness and our understanding of the world around us. Don't know if that's the case. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So and the third eye being, obviously, there is a gland in there that is capable of absorbing light uh, mm. inside of mm. the human brain. So I read, I could be proven wrong, uh, but that, uh, and obviously the third eye or that part of our brain, that little tiny uh, vessel, features prominently in like Egyptian uh, imagery and stuff and uh, and obviously in a lot of um, religious and spiritual texts. But uh, I don't know, was it, uh, it was designed originally for better teeth health is that right i honestly don't know yeah i thought so yeah teeth yeah better dentition as they say well uh i did read an interview with a dentist once and this is probably interesting for all our listeners out there someone asked what the best toothpaste is yep and he said it does not matter what the ingredients are as long as it's got a little bit of fluoride and he said so don't pay five dollars don't pay four dollars if you can find something 50 cents grab it as long as it's got that little tiny ingredient that's all you need. Everything else is just fluff. So there and we go. So mostly about the mechanical rather than, yeah, exactly what it is, which is kind of the same with hand washing. I'm going to have all the health people contact me and say exactly that. But hand washing is more about making sure you've got all the bits covered Friction. and you've done the nails and between the fingers and the webbing and all of that. And it's actually the mechanical 
time you spend, which is why during the lockdowns, we had all the kids singing happy birthday to you to make sure that they spent at least that amount of time uh, washing their hands. Oh, so there, there you go. go. Yeah, mm-hmm. as opposed to staying alive when you're doing uh, CPR. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a different song. Because tell me, sorry, they tell me it's the right beat. But nonetheless, oh. here's a cool little fact. A journalist okay. Simon Townsend, mm-hmm. uh, who was at that time future host of Simon Townsend's Wonderworld, a show oh, which yeah. I actually remember for, as a kid. Yes, my kids was, watched it. Yeah. Uh, so Simon was granted exemption from military service after lodging a fifth appeal against his imprisonment and court-martial for conscientious objections. Do you know, for, for all this time, until this today, this very yeah. just brief moment before researching, A, yeah. I didn't know Simon Townsend was a, actually originally a journalist, yeah. and B, I had no idea that he had been imprisoned and, and, no, and, and fought the system. What a legend. So there, there you go. go. There you go. I do know that he had a really good dog that he yeah, had Woodrow. a really weird laugh on the, on the show. Yeah, it was a bloodhound, wasn't it, Woodrow? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he didn't do much but stare at the TV like he smoked something funny. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, back to your neck of the woods, Veronica, in Mm. Victoria. The National Gallery of Victoria was opened in Melbourne, Mm. uh, so 1968. And also, you know, um, I mentioned the rock and roll. We had the rock and roll, so we had the who and and the small faces causing havoc on planes and Mm -hmm. I'm sure landing to the, you know, lots of people screaming. But there was also um, a, a little bit of protest, so... There was 50 students arrested during an anti-Vietnam War protest in Sydney and there were also 45 people arrested during an anti-war protest outside the US consulate in St Kilda. Mm-hmm. So, fair bit happening. Uh, but to finish on a lighter note, I found this quite cool. Three particular people were born in 1968, which, um, you know, between the three of them... Or m- well, I wouldn't say shape the future, no, not at all. But something that uh, had probably touched all of our lives in some way when it comes to entertainment. Mm-hmm. 1968, the world was graced with Kylie Minogue, Jason Donovan, which is pretty funny that they were married, uh, married born in the same <laughs> year because I do remember watching the wedding on Neighbours, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and actor Hugh Jackman. So there the, you go. Yeah, how cool is that? So there three powerhouse entertainers from Australia, uh, all born in the same year. So just to finish off our what uh, was obviously quite a um, interesting year, and I suspect that the years are only going to get more frantic and full of you know cool and crazy stuff as we move forward. Yeah, as we're also able to record so much more as we gradually move into the you know the age of uh, technology, uh, where where the internet you know is can drag stuff and and keep it online forever. But in the meantime, let me tell you about some meanings and origins of Australian words and idioms. Oh, please do. What letter are we up to? So we're up to I. I almost thought of going to G, which we will talk about later. But no, I thought, no, let's keep going. We're heading down to A, but it's I. And have you heard of an illywhacker? No. I've heard of a tallywhacker, but not an illywhacker. <laughs> not an illywhacker. Okay. Well, according to the Australian National University School of Literature, Languages and Linguistics, which is the College of Arts and Social Scientists, an illywhacker is a small-time confidence trickster. So the word's probably formed from illy, with the same meaning, which is likely an alteration of the Australian word a spieler, meaning a person who engages in sharp practice, a swindler, originally a card sharper. To whack the illy, to act as a confidence trickster, and illywhacker are first recorded in Kyle Tennant's The Battlers in 1941. Mm. So there you go. 
It was becoming obsolescent uh, in Australian English, but it was given new life when Peter Carey used it as the title of his 1985 novel. There you go. And in that novel, we find the following passage. What is a nillywacker? A spieler, a trickster, a quandong, a rippity man, a con man. Hmm. So I'm trying to picture a nillywacker. So is that someone along the lines of, you know... Uh, a card tricks on the on the corner, ready to yeah. bolt at the sign of trouble. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. I'd say, yeah, definitely. And I mean, these days it would be somebody who rings up and says, you know, your credit cards have uh, been reported stolen. Just give me your details, and I <laughs> I'll fix that right up for you. Like, mm, yeah. So that they would definitely be an illywacker. Well, All right. that's, that's a polite way to put it for <laughs> today's terminology. Yes. All right. Have you heard of the term wouldn't work in an iron lung? I have actually, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Of course, means extremely lazy. And the phrase derives from the artificial respirator that kept polio patients alive by breathing for them in the days when up to 10,000 people annually were affected by poliomyelitis, which is infantile paralysis, which nowadays we vaccinate for in Australia. And the vaccinations became routine in the mid-1950s and the fear of polio diminished um, and the phrase is recorded from the 1970s. However, there were up until, I think not that long ago, um, I remember when I was doing my nursing, because as we know, I'm a little bit older than you, uh, part of our nursing was to go out to the repatriation hospital. Uh, we did infectious diseases. And part of that was to go to um, the repatriation hospital out in Heidelberg. And there were still, I think at that stage, two people who were in iron lungs and we learned how to care for them and look after them. They were older people. One was youngish, uh, but they were you know, older than you would imagine. And mm. the other, uh, what was the infectious diseases hospital out at Caulfield? Is it Caulfield? Which is now shut. I can't remember the name. Isn't that wicked? But we also went out there and looked after kids with whooping cough and those kind of things. So, oh, wow. you know, yeah, pretty horrible stuff. Most of which we've been able to, you know, eradicate or significantly uh, diminish in Australia. So there you go. Wouldn't work in an iron lung because really the iron lung works for you. So extremely lazy. Yeah, there so, you go. yeah. It's, it's definitely to me. It's a a kind of phrase that uh, well, it's it's had its time. I think obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Th- both yeah, of these, I think, have a very moved yeah, strange on. history yeah. there. Yeah, they also mentioned ice block, which uh, you know, I think that saying ice block to somebody in Australia now, they're just going to go, oh well, it's just a block of ice. But uh, an ice block. Oh no. You know, we could be an icy pole. But if I said ice block to you, what would you think? Well, I would think of like an ice block, so a flavoured ice block from the yeah. from the corner deli. Yes. Uh, yeah, I can, it would also rush me back to childhood as a kid in primary school where it really came down to whether you wanted a, a razz or a snip. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the well, best thing on earth, but anyway. Here's a little one for you. In 1933, the Mornington Bulletin in Rockhampton, um, up north, on the 11th of December, while walking across a street, a boy had an ice block struck from his hand by a flash of lightning. Oh. Now, I don't know if I believe that, but that's what was reported. I could believe it. I was, I was expecting a um, super thirsty or uh, ice block addicted seagull or something. Oh, yes, exactly. Seagull or a magpie yeah. or something. No, flash of lightning. Oh. There you go. So those are some uh, Australian words. And the etymologies that begin with I. Ah. Well, after all of that fun stuff, then we are in episode 68. We've got a great guest coming up. 
Uh, we've got the uh, Reader's Cafe. We've got the Writer's Lounge. We've got so much to do. Uh, so it's so much fun to be had. So how about we just uh, start off with a little bit of news? Indeed. Let's do it. do 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 A little bit of news with uh, the extended long weekend as it is in Australia, uh, particularly in Victoria with the grand final on Saturday. Things are a little quiet on the events front, but there are events at Readings Books, Sun Bookshop, the Wheeler Centre and Public Libraries in Victoria. Uh, for those of you who don't want to be glued to the telly or get away from Footy Man Melbourne and go to the Northern Beaches Festival. So there's quite a lot uh, happening and you know thinking that we've got a little bit of um, space between when we record and when we deliver there's on the 28th of September navigating self-publishing with Percy Shozzi who am I uh, at the Roville Library uh, Sisters in Crime in the library Bodies on the Beach uh, is on also the 28th at the St Kilda Library and Sisters in Crime are um, a great organisation for crime and thriller writers uh, in Australia and I know there's been a big crime and thriller event festival uh, happening in the UK and I think it's is it Blood in Scotland or Scotland in Blood I can't remember Sisters in Crime will correct me um, about that and we've actually got some really great crime writers coming up in the next uh, little while uh, for not only books are, are on the website but we will be chatting to Chris Hammer who is a, a crime writer and to Petronella McGovern so it's all about crime at the moment so that's a good thing well depending on which side of crime you're on <laughs> well that's true <laughs> and, and, look, and whether crime pays or not so you know it, it is so many facets to that stone yeah well this is true now Oz writes, who, you know we chatted to Kevin Clare and uh, Reb Langham one of the prompts this week was to write a tweet length story in a genre other than what you normally write in and so I wrote a crime one and it, it was a little bit hard I've got to admit to think oh what am I going to say so yes that was very interesting that crime has been on my mind mm. lucky you live in another state Darren well yes true yes <laughs> <laughs> but see that in today's world it doesn't matter where I am I can just well, fly no. all across the planet <laughs> All right, so that if you are looking for some more uh, things to do, some more literary events, check out Literary Listings, of course, which is one of my favourite spots to have a bit of a look at or look on Twitter under Writing Community or look at OzRights and uh, if, look at your associations at the writing venues or the writing membership clubs in each state and territory because they are a great source of what's going on. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay. Well, you know at the time of recording we are... Just a, just over a week, maybe ten days, nine days away from mm-hmm. the spooky ooky time of the year, <laughs> October, uh-huh, uh, which is a uh-huh. beautiful time of the year. Yeah, uh, and of course that means all things horror for me at least, and yep. uh, it means ripping out the old horror VHS. It means catching up on some uh, what the, some of the latest horror movies, reading some cool horror books, short fiction, all that jazz. So. Yep. Saying all that, um, obviously it, I, I put the big call out for any horror writers out there if they want to put together a, a short story, a horror short under 5,000 words or give or take that length uh, for the website. That would be fantastic, of course, because uh, we'd love to be able to read some uh, horror short stories out during the month of October. Would so, we? Would we now, Darren? Well, I'll rephrase <laughs> that. I would love. <laughs> 
So we might be sending out something in the newsletter. But if you know anybody who loves writing a horror, or if you uh, haven't even tackled a short story before, but you want to delve into one, starting with horror, and of course, mm. that's probably starting from the best place you could possibly be, then uh, please do jump on the uh, website, go to Four Authors. There's a really easy submission form. Get that short story in. Um, you'll get a cover. We'll pop it on. People can share it, read it, learn about who you are as an author. And of course, we'll read it on the podcast because I'm looking forward to some lots of spooky, ooky things in October. But speaking of spooky, ooky things, uh, mm-hmm. from the Australasian Horror Writers Association, mm-hmm. there is a short story competition and it's called Flash Fiction and Short Story Competition. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. That's what I just said. But it's uh, so the Australasian Horror Writers Association, Robert N. Stevenson Flash Fiction and Short Story Competition, mm-hmm. not something you want to say after two drinks. No. <laughs> has opened for submissions for the two, for 2022 and the submissions will remain open until midnight on October 31st, 2022. So on the website it reads as follows, we want your best horror story, your very best. This is Australia's leading unpublished horror fiction competition and our winning entries are always imaginative, engaging, well-written and bloody scary. Mm. We need tales that frighten, yarns that unsettle us in our comfortable homes. All themes in horror will be accepted from the supernatural classics, so for example, zombies, vampires and ghosts, mm-hmm. to psychological roller coaster rides, to the highly original. No previously published entries will be accepted. All tales, of course, must be an original work by the author. So when it comes to submissions, there are two categories. There's flash fiction, which is stories of up to 1,000 words in length, and short stories, so stories from 1,000 words to 7,500 words. The winner in each category will receive an engraved plaque, and the winning stories will appear in Midnight Echo and receive the pay rate commensurate with that edition. So any entry details, let's see, writers who are Australasian, so that's any Australian, New Zealand, etc. So citizens may submit to one or both categories, but entry is limited to one story per, uh, sorry, one story per author per category. So please, uh, there's a bunch of stuff in there, but uh, the judges, I can tell you, will be Paul Sheldon, Bernie Rutke, uh, Claire Fitzpatrick, Anthony Ferguson, Emma Nafee, Daniel Carr, Peter Bowditch. Now, the, there is an actual entry fee. For the general public, it's $5 for flash fiction and $10 for short story entries. Secure payments can be made via PayPal. Uh, in the message field, please write COMP20. But uh, all these details you can find on the website, australasianhorror.com, and just forward slash competition, or just click on the competition button. So there we go. It's great, to, go. great to see some... Uh, a rallying of the Australian horror author troops for the month of October. And again, if you are a horror writer, want to give you a shot at writing a short story, please do pop something together. It'll be fantastic. Uh, send it through to the Australian Book Lovers website. We will not only include it as part of the short story portal there, which means there's a whole bunch of uh, opportunities for people to find your work and then click a button and discover further more about you. But we'd love to read them out and maybe even do a production on one of the stories or two um, for the good ones and uh, have maybe, I don't know, we, Veronica, there may even be a one-off special spooky-ooky Halloween edition of uh, Australian Book Lovers. But, uh, you never know. No, we could just, be putting that together, yes. You never depend, know. You on never a number know. of things. Yeah. I did want to mention, sorry, there was one more festival because this is actually a readers' festival. So oh, the Northern excellent. Beaches have got a readers' festival uh, up in Avalon in New South Wales and that's the 23rd to the 25th of September. So jump in there. Hopefully we'll have this episode out before then. But just, yeah, keep your eye out on um, all the, the festivals that are going out because 
after the football down in Victoria, there's a whole lot more happening, which is good. And I've actually just booked my ticket for um, one of the days for the Mountain Riders Festival, which is happening up at Mount Macedon, uh, which is very exciting that it's just mm. up the road. So I've got no excuses not to go. So I've, I can't go on the, the Sunday because I've got uh, some family commitments, but on the Saturday I will be there. Awesome. So if you're in the area, come along, say hello. You never know, I might be able to uh, take a little recording of uh, some yeah, feedback on what's happening. Well, you never know, but for a second there, I thought you said mountain riders, and then that made me think riders of the storm, and then I remember <laughs> that, that 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 sort of storm introduction to that song by the Doors, uh-huh. and that was funny because I was about to say, and you know, with all these festivals, and you know, being that it's spring, what a fantastic yeah. time to shop for beanies and umbrellas. There you go. Because the, the weather go. is just still shocking. But anyway, that, that's, and a, that's some it good news there. Good, good that festivals. is some good news, yeah. and it wasn't um, crime in Scotland. I don't think it was bad crime Sydney that I was thinking of, which of course was earlier this month. So. Bad Crime Sydney, one of their uh, guest speakers up there on their panels was Vicky Petratus, who, of course, you can find her uh, book Once a Copper, The Life and Times of Brian the Skull Murphy on the website. And Vicky's got a number of books uh, out as well. So there you go. And crime's always fascinating when it comes to cities like Melbourne and Sydney because, I mean, and Adelaide is like if you're a criminal, you get hunted and you get... um well, you either go fishing and don't come back, or, or you end up in court and, and you go to jail. Like that's okay. kind of how it works. But then, when it comes to Melbourne City, you got this fascination with where they talk about known crime family, and it's like as they're driving around in their cars and you know enjoying the casinos. And I think if you substitute the word crime and let's say murderer, assaulter, anything. So if you went, oh, known murderer, <laughs> celebrity, mm-hmm. um, gambling at the casinos, I don't know how you can be a known criminal and be on the streets. No, but it's 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 funny. It's almost celebrated in Melbourne, Sydney, where you've got known crime families. Well, that's a pretty naughty thing to say if they're not doing crimes. But if they are doing crimes, then catch them. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) I don't get the problem really. (laughs) If if uh, Angelo doesn't have a job or whoever doesn't have a job, and they've got a fifty million dollar car and they're driving around, that might and they come from a uh, known crime family. I don't get. I'm no uh, Inspector Clouseau, but uh, <laughs> but uh, that's. Oh, I've just. Found, I, I don't know if that's um, something. It's quite an Australian thing. I'm. Not, I, I don't know, mm. or whether it's a, an East Coast thing or something. I'd have to, you know, be interesting to delve into because, mm. um, you know, being that we do celebrate a lot of criminals. You know, look at the under underbelly. You know, your, your crimes in Melbourne, and of course, you know, the Sydney sort of underground, and um, yeah. So there, there's an element of fame and, and mystique to it infamy maybe infamy though. maybe yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's just funny that uh, if you've got a known crime boss known crime family known crime syndicate that name crime means that they are doing something naughty I don't know I'm not going to tell the police what their job is but <laughs> <laughs> you know. all right let's but anyway, I digress um, let's you know think what? about grabbing a cuppa and going to the cafe I think so that'll be cool because I think some yeah. of the readers are going to be enjoying a little bit of time in the cafe so let's jump into the yeah like I said Veronica good idea let's get a coffee because <laughs> I'm getting tongue twisted Okay, welcome to the Reader's Cafe where we can 
take a moment and relax and get a coffee and maybe pour a little bit of whiskey in the coffee depending on what time of the day it is but mm-hmm, i'm just curious mm-hmm. what what uh what sort of cafe are you in today well i think the cafe i mean has a fireplace still i was going to say i think we're over the fireplace but no 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 I think we had to get more wood on the weekend it's got a fireplace but there are really big picture windows i think i'm looking out over a brilliant valley i think i've got a hot cup of tea and i must admit that i did make peanut butter cookies this morning because I needed a little bit of procrastinate baking and I needed some time to think and as an introvert baking helps me think so I'm going to say that that's the cafe that I am in what about you hmm yeah peanut butter I love peanut butter sandwiches but do you know <laughs> as an adult well as, a, as my existence on this planet as a human being it was only last week that was the very first time that I stuck a knife in the peanut butter jar and then just ate the peanut butter straight off the knife. Oh, you haven't lived until now. What have you been doing? Oh, man, I feel rebellious. That was glorious. <laughs> anyway, my um, my cafe, being that uh, well, for the moment anyway, we've got the, we've got the rains coming over that are you know the part of the cell that's shifting over the east coast at the time yep. recording. So I am picturing my cafe is on a super busy street. The lights are dark outside, even though it's midday. There's just the rain sort of pattering against the windows. The you know, car lights and street lights are reflecting off all the water and the pools and umbrellas are walking past. So and the the, uh, the water's fanning out from behind the car. So interesting. And I'm just sitting against the window with my hot coffee because I want to tell our awesome, awesome listeners about a couple of the new book releases on the website mm-hmm. before we are maybe joined by another guest for a little sip or two of coffee. Yes, and. Did you know, of course, that a reader is in fact a bibliophile or bookworm? I think we talked about that really early in the series, didn't we? Oh, yeah, yeah, bibliophile. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And there was a really interesting little article uh, about the different types of readers. And according to Basmo, there are 20 different types of readers. And, you know, what type are you? Are you the literary snob? The habitual book clubber, the partial reader, the series junkie, oh, definitely one of those. The polygamist reader, also one of those. The rereader, yeah, count me there. The physical book loyalist, yep. The digital reader, yep. The spoiler lover, oh no, no, I hate those people who spoil the ending. The movie adaptation lover, the non-fiction lover, the fiction fanatic, the young adults lover, the emotional reader, the fad reader, the college reader, the neurotic reader, the writer reader, the note taker and... The vacation reader. Even that list is probably just scratching the surface. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, depending on what you want to divvy it up as. So there you go. So thanks, Bezmo. Those are 20 different types of readers, some of whom you may find in the Reader's Cafe. And I'll put myself sometimes as a frustrated reader because yeah. I've got so much there I want to read and I just cannot I just cannot get the time. Yes. Uh, but then when I can get the time, I am, uh, yeah, it's heaven, uh, the world can shut around me or can explode around me yeah. I've got that time to sit down with a book and uh, the yeah definitely a couple of books I've been reading but ones I will be reading um, that will be reading soon so uh, yeah so th- there is time in there somewhere and of course as I mentioned earlier going on a bit of a trek so I'll be carrying my trusty Kindle with me and I'm hoping ah, very good yeah very good. so um, will you be reading spooky horror you know death and stabbing things out in the middle of the Australian <laughs> bush and, and or will you go no no you're not reading any of those uh no actually I'll be reading a biography of a doctor who was I understand was one of the first pioneers of um cannabis based uh, medicine 
right. uh, um, here in Australia. So, uh, who I think may even be appearing on our show in the near, not too distant future. So, um, yeah, so I was lucky enough to have a copy of that sent to me. So I'm going to read that because I do find that an interesting sort of um, change in, in the medical sort of frontier here in Australia mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's bringing a lot of subjects to be open to discuss. But, but no, I've learned my lesson. Um, well, no, I wouldn't say I learned my lesson. I'd never learned. I'm, I'm stupid as far as that goes. But <laughs> the no, it'll be nice. It'll be nice reflective reading out there. It's a bit of Zen time out there. But yeah, I do. I yeah. don't mind at all scaring myself when I go to the property out bush and yeah. put it putting a horror movie on. Or I've got all my old uh, '80s horror books out there and. It's all fun and games until I'm the only one out there and it's three in the morning and it's noise. <laughs> I don't. And you realise uh, I'm completely isolated. I could be abducted by aliens. I oh, could be, yeah. you know, chopped into pieces by a killer. No one would know. <laughs> and um, it makes it for interesting... Um, countdown to the dawn let's just say but um, definitely definitely well what i'm reading at the moment is sister girl reflections on todayism identity and reconciliation by jackie huggins there's a a new um uh, edition uh today's classic by murray historian and activist jackie huggins featuring timely and compelling speeches and essays so yeah it's amazing it's almost four decades of writing by historian activist Jackie Huggins yeah essays and speeches and it's great to be able to dip in and out of you know a a non-fiction because oftentimes it just charges your brain up with so much to think about and reflect on and you know the topics about identity and activism and and leadership and reconciliation yeah just it is an amazing piece of work so I'm just over a third of the way through but yeah yeah so yeah non-fiction can leave you uh closing the book or shutting down the screen yeah. and thinking yeah. about things for a few days too sometimes and, and using whatever not sometimes it's new knowledge that you've gained or a different way of looking and then yeah. sort of putting that new lens on stepping back outside the front door and going oh wow yeah, you know, and it's sometimes like having secret tricks revealed too. Yes, uh, it was kind of because you said you're going to be out in the bush, and I was thinking about, you know, sitting out there if I was reading Jackie's book and about the connection, you know, to land and country and those kind of things, and yeah, that would have been pretty amazing. But I'm not going with you. You're taking your wife, so you know what can I say? Yeah, we're going heading. <laughs> I think it's about five-hour drive from here, so yeah, yeah. so it's going to be interesting. Uh, lots good. of beautiful hiking, and yeah, a little bit of Zen time with reading. But uh, mm. for our book lovers on the other side of the headphones, um, yep. connected of course through power technology, we do have a couple of cool new titles on the website that you might be interested in. Mm. So if you are staying home, or if you're going out to the middle of nowhere, or somewhere in between but need something new to read, here we go. So we have got a new sci-fi release. The story, well, the story, the book is called Virtual Insanity, and Mm. that is by author Kevin Clare, who has got quite a few titles on our website. And, of course, if you tuned in to our last episode, you would have had the pleasure of listening to Kevin have a chat with us in the Writer's Lounge. So Mm -hmm. Virtual Insanity reads as follows. When Taylor is sent to beat a city to help its citizens disconnect from the all-knowing social media central, he becomes the target of a deadly game. Augmented reality players wearing head-to-toe gaming suits believe he is the enemy alien and they shoot to kill. So Taylor is forced to hide in a secret bunker, trapped with no way to escape this urban nightmare. And as his friends hatch a plan to get him back home, they find the person toying with Taylor's life is more AI than human. So, dun, dun, dun. Dun, there we dun, go. Dun. Virtual yes. Insanity by yes. uh, Kevin Clare, which you can find under the science fiction genre on the website. 
it has a great cover i must admit and i've seen some of the reviews come through and it's sounds really good i have so many books to read yes and uh <laughs> you know it had me at virtual reality really <laughs> <laughs> well that's exactly right <laughs> now switching a little bit from yeah from science fiction to fantasy have a brand new release by author cheryl berman um cheryl is ah, actually cheryl's one of our yeah yep. It has Pioneers. a couple of titles and, and also yeah. has a short story on the portal. So if you want to have a quick read of uh, some of her work, and I'm sure you will fall in love and then want to grab a copy of this. But this uh, sounds fantastic. The, the book title is called River Witch. And as I mentioned, it is a fantasy. And River Witch reads as follows. You and I are not ordinary folk, little mistress. We are wise. We call the river by her goddess name, Sabrina. So Hester, a farmer's daughter, yearns for more than feeding lambs by the kitchen fire. She envies the freedom of the river nymphs and listens to Sabrina's whispers. Be wise, be strong. When Hester meets Aaron, a man powerful in herbal lore, she decides the healing wisdom of fields and forest is what Sabrina seeks of her. But her mother scorns her ambitions as witchery and decrees her daughter will have a husband to settle her down. Hester flees to Aaron, only to discover he too insists she should marry and be ordinary folk. While a desperate Hester battles for her dream, Aaron must reconcile his past to accept the future. Will the river help or hinder? And that is River Witch by author Cheryl Bourbon under our fantasy genre on the website. There you go. Finishing on a little bit of a serious note, but I suspect this is you know will be a very profound read for anybody willing to dive into it and i think there'll be a lot of listeners out there that will be very interested in the premise and in in what the story this well in essence what this um reflection and um revelations of somebody's actual experience let's put it that way so the book is called Ten Thousand aftershocks and it is Mm. by author michelle tom and Ten Thousand aftershocks can be found under our biography so after Michelle Tom's house was damaged by a deadly magnitude 6.3 earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2011, she and her young family suffered through another 10,000 aftershocks before finally relocating to the stability of Melbourne, Australia. But soon after arriving, Michelle received the news that her estranged sister was dying. Determined to reconnect before her sister died, Michelle flew home to visit and memories of childhood flooded back. Told through the five stages of an earthquake via remembered fragments, Michelle Tom explores the similarities between seismic upheaval and her own family's tragedies. Her sister's terminal illness, her brother's struggle with schizophrenia and ultimate suicide, the sudden death of her father, her own panic disorder, and, through it all, one overarching battle, her lifelong struggle to form a healthy connection with her mother. A powerful, poetic and moving memoir of family, violence and estrangement, 10,000 Aftershocks weaves together a series of ever-widening and far-reaching emotional and seismic aftershocks in a beautifully written and compelling account of dark family drama for readers of the erratics and 100 years of dirt. And so that is 10,000 Aftershocks by Michelle Mm. Tom under our bog Really, really interesting there, and mm. um, like gobsmacked at the concept of mm. you know utilizing the stages of an earthquake to also coincide with the revelations of memories and, and maybe yeah. bringing yeah. to light um, things that need to be well, not necessarily need to be resolved, but need to be confronted. Mm. Very powerful book by the sounds of it. 
Mm, absolutely. And we have uh, Michelle on our list to chat to in the near future. And I say near future uh, because Christmas is coming. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're funny. going on holidays and then I'm going on holidays and then, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, it's just funny because it used to be, well, um, it'll be here soon. Well, so Christmas. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was saying. So you made it sound like it was coming soon, so it's Christmas. Oh. <laughs> but no, Christmas no, no. really is coming in this scenario. It, it really is yeah. coming, yeah, indeed. But speaking of books, I believe mm. we've got someone who's going to pop in the cafe, coffee shop with us here in the, in the Reader's Cafe to uh, offer a book review. Yes, in fact, this is absolutely true. So Naomi Shippen, one of our most prominent uh, guest reviews. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Thanks so much, Naomi. You're always coming in with great reviews. She does. And she had a read of uh, our guest author's uh, book, The Hallett's Tale. Oh, okay. So, and of course, so our maybe author you should introduce being, yeah. the guest author. Well, we'll do that. We'll let we'll let um, we'll let Naomi have a coffee and let us know her book review, and then we'll yeah. jump straight into an introduction to the fabulous Mr. David Cairns, who is a historical fiction author. But uh, shall we just welcome? Yeah, Naomi come on right in, now? Naomi. Let's hear all about it. Hi, I'm Naomi Shippen. Stories have always been an important part of my life, but it was not until recent years that I began writing my own. Mystery, suspense and domestic noir hold a special fascination for me, and I also love to read about people living in a different time and place. You can find out more about my writing on my website, naomishippen.com, and you can follow me on social media on Twitter, at Naomi Shippen, Instagram at naomi.shippen.writes and Facebook at N. Shippen. Today I would like to review The Hallett's Tale by David Cairns of Fenevin. The Hallett's Tale is the true story of Marianne Goulding and Robert Bright, who were transported from England to Van Diemen's Land, Australia, to serve out their time for the petty crimes they committed. The story is comprised of two separate books. Book one, Downfall, is about their lives in England and transportation to Australia. And book two, Redemption, is about their lives as convicts in a newly colonised land. Today I will be reviewing book two, Redemption. The term helot comes from the ancient Greek and means someone who is between a slave and a citizen. This term is apt for both Marianne and Robert and their place when they arrive on Van Diemen's land. Marianne is a high-spirited and rebellious young woman whose forthright manner often gets her into trouble. She is fond of a drink and a good time, which is not well received by her conservative employers, nor is her propensity to speak her mind. Fiery and fierce, Marianne lives like there's no tomorrow, constantly ricocheting between assigned posts, the female factory and prison. When she meets fellow convict Robert, they soon find themselves drawn to each other. Their relationship blossoms despite enforced periods of separation when they don't even know if they will ever see each other again. But in time, Robert earns his certificate of freedom and he asks Mary Ann to marry him. She gladly accepts and the two begin their lives together. They are happy raising their young family, but life is never easy as they work hard on farms and the gold fields before finally starting their own business. Like many other emancipated convicts, they aspire to one day owning their own property, thus beginning the tradition of the great Australian dream. While their hard work brings rewards, their lives are also shadowed by tragedy. 
But through it all, they remain strong as a family and their love for each other helps them to endure. The Hallett's Tale is one for the history buffs, with much detail about daily life in the early colonial days of Australia and the major events of the time. I loved seeing how Marianne and Robert dealt with the difficult hand they were given and how their optimism and pioneering spirit shines through. The Hallett's Tale is a fascinating and moving account of these two ostensibly ordinary people living in an extraordinary time. Such a fun little session in the Reader's Cafe and uh, great having a coffee with you, Veronica. And for uh, Naomi, thanks for coming and joining us for coffee and for offering a book review. But now, of course, to the big interview for the show, and that is with a very, shall we say, very well-researched author because this gentleman yes. is, you know, you, you meet people that have a, a certain passion for something and, um, you know, you know that someone's passionate when you when you can just tell they give everything they've got into their craft or mm. their particular area of uh, interest. And so we have author Mr. David Cairns of Finnevon and the of Finnevon will make sense once we go to the interview because that is an official title, David Cairns of Finnevon. Mm-hmm. But he is, but in essence, uh, an historical fiction author amongst many things uh the gentleman is if you if you do like historical fiction then you're going to absolutely love this he uh, he does has done a whole lot of research about you know the you know the the life and times in london and the journeys and the reasons for the journeys and the you know the the sort of trials and tribulations of people that by force or by choice uh, made that journey from England or London to to Australia or what was uh, mm-hmm. would, what would become Australia and then the the lives that the, again the trials and tribulations of this new land and uh, you know the being in a colonialist sorry the early days of colonialism here in mm-hmm. here in Australia mm-hmm. so he's got quite a few tales there his books include the case of the emigrant niece enter Findo Gask and Errol Rate now that sounds like a mouthful <laughs> uh, but I'll let uh, David explain that that's more of a if you think of Sherlock Holmes then that might get close give you an idea of that that's coming soon but of course he has the Hellas Tale book one and book two uh, which is all about the journey here to Australia and making a life in a new land mm-hmm. and somewhat based on real life characters too so as you'll hear a whole lot of, of research that went into there and also one of his newer books bush ranger gold the mclover gold escort robbery so mm-hmm. there we go a bit of bit of bush ranger gold and and like you mentioned a bit of crime crime good crime bad crime <laughs> ah, well, well, that might be discussed as well but no so uh, historical fiction lovers you are in for a real treat david was just a wonderful guest uh, you know had so many opportunities to talk about a whole range of subjects you know taking into account of course his current and uh, previous roles as uh, in within his career and of course and in his uh, literary journey and all of the all of the ways should I say that he studies research and what inspired him for the stories but rather than hear me jammer on it's obviously that coffee was strong in the cafe uh, in the readers cafe mm-hmm. shall we just go to the interview and discover all there is to know about David Cairns of Finnevon sounds good bring it on Amazing listeners, my next very special guest is, and I suspect, or sorry, was, and I suspect still is, a student of history, was a technology entrepreneur with many successes and a self-confessed stumble or two. 
has lived and worked on four continents before choosing Australia's laid-back lifestyle to pursue his writing passions, amongst other things, and has penned titles such as Bush Ranger Gold, The Hellet's Tale Book 1, Downfall, The Hellet's Tale Book 2, Redemption, and The Case of the Immigrant Niece, which is coming later this year. Now, for historic fiction and non-fiction lovers, his works predominantly are set in the 19th century, and he is a firm believer that we should ignore history only at our own peril. Mr. David Cairns, Baron of Finnevon, welcome to the Australian Book Lovers Podcast Show. Oh, thank you very much, Darren. It's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. No, the pleasure is mine, absolutely, and uh, because I think uh, this is going to be, I've, I've got many a question, and I think we're going to have so much ground to cover with this chat and many discussion to be had. Uh, but before we dive or delve, should I say, into uh, the literary machinations and themes of all your work, I would love uh, for you to let all of our really cool listeners, maybe let them know a little bit about you, uh, a bit about your career adventures. And of course, I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I didn't ask you to also maybe uh, elaborate on how you obtained the title Baron of Finnevon and what that uh, title represents. Okay. Just, just a simple one to start with. All, yeah, all well, that. it's uh, hopefully we've uh, got enough time to go through before I bore everybody. <laughs> no, we've well, got time. No, my business career is, was primarily, uh, in fact, still is, in technology. Uh, I've been a CEO, CFO uh, of both private and public companies. I've taken um, three companies public uh, in the US and in Europe on the NASDAQ. Wow. Uh, one of them uh, got to a $2 billion market capitalization. Uh, this was in the software space. Wow, that's incredible. It's uh, very exciting, um, very challenging, and uh, managed to get me around the world as well because these were all international businesses. And uh, it's, it's allowed me to uh, parlay my passion on writing into reality as well because it's uh, given me... Uh, a basis to start with. But uh, as, a, as a result of that, as you mentioned earlier, I've lived on four continents, uh, lived in Canada, the US. In the US, I've lived in places like Silicon Valley, Chicago, Nashville, Philadelphia, Boston. Wow. Um, in, I've been in Bahamas, South Africa, Germany, France, Netherlands, uh, and, and so on. So I, I find that having traveled as much as I have uh, and all of it associated with uh, business of one kind or another, uh, it's allowed me to build a lot of experiences, a lot of contacts, and I, I try and use that to my advantage in uh, writing the stories I write. Okay. So, the, um, so the business side, as I say, I'm still active. I chair three companies. I'm also on the board of Arthritis Queensland, pro bono. And uh, that keeps me busy as well. Uh, but uh, writing is is something that uh, I, I really enjoy and I intend doing a lot more of in the years to come. Regarding the, uh, the title, uh, the Baron of Finavon or the Barony goes back to the 13th century in Scotland, um, it was originally uh, granted to 
the Earl of Crawford and has come down through the ages and uh, I obtained the title uh, in about 2000 when the Lord Lion King of Arms uh, granted me the uh, the title of Baron of Fenaven, which together with um, probably about five dollars these days will buy me a cup of coffee so uh, oh. Okay. Well, I was going to ask, how does one celebrate uh, receiving that title? Um, Is there a traditional it, celebration or...? Well, it's as it's a Scottish title, it involved kilts, of course, and uh, lots of single malt. And um, depending on the time of year, might even have some haggis, neeps and totties to go along with it. But uh, it's something that you know, involves me, gets me... Uh, uh, linked in a, in a metaphysical way almost with uh, Scottish history, with what's going on in Scotland. And it's something that I feel very central to my core being in many respects. And mm. it, it has, you know, obligations as well as... Uh, well, I suspect it also brings a lot of pride, especially for someone uh, like yourself who is obviously very passionate about history and, uh, you know, and all that, that that encompasses. So, yeah, it must come with a great deal of pride as well to well, have, that, have that, that representational that. connection with the history of Scotland. That's true. And, and of course, uh, there is an old uh, castle to the north of St Andrews in Scotland, Finavon Castle. And there was, back in the, um, I think it was the 14th or 15th century, uh, there was a famous seer or prophesier in Scotland called Thomas the Rhymer. And he was a guest at uh, the castle uh, on one occasion. And he penned a few lines uh, of prophecy before he left. And the, the important one is, when Finavon Castle rends to sand, the end of the world is near at hand. So I have a real obligation to make sure that Finnegan Castle doesn't run to sand. Uh, otherwise, we're all in trouble. Yes, uh, no, I, I, I agree. Yes, please keep that castle up if that's the uh, outcome of it, Crumbly. <laughs> most definitely. Um, or, or perhaps change a line in the poem so it doesn't rhyme and then maybe that stops the prophecy from coming uh, through. Well, who, who, who can say? But, yeah, uh, who can say? It, it, it's looking fairly stable at the moment, so I think we've got a few more years yet left. Fingers crossed, our fingers and toes crossed. And uh, I obviously still have a bunch of questions, but uh, you mentioned that you're doing work with, uh, with Queensland or Arthritis Queensland. How did you come about to that position? And is, is that something, is that a uh, subject important to you? Or, as in well, personally? My, yeah, my uh, uh, grandson is a sufferer of juvenile arthritis, quite, oh, no. quite bad sufferer actually, um, which he copes with extremely well. But uh, as a result, I've developed an interest in what goes on in this area and in particularly research. And when Arthritis Queensland were uh, looking to refresh their board uh, a few years back, um, they put out an ad and I just responded, said that well, I, I might be interested in helping out. So hmm. they um, approached me and uh, have asked me to chair the finance committee and uh, the audit and risk uh, piece of the, the organization and obviously contribute as a board member to the strategy and fundraising and 
and of the research uh, programs that we're involved in. So it's um, it's a way of uh, contributing and giving something back rather than just always taking stuff away. Mm, I think that's fantastic and, and obviously a really important cause too. Uh, especially considering I think arthritis is going to touch or at least to some degree all of us at some point whether it be someone we know oh, or yes. it, you know, it, is. it can be a deadly disease although most people don't think of it that, that way and when it is um, particularly uh, egregious it can make people wish they were dead because of the pain mm. and, the, and the problems that come with it so we, we um we do a lot of work with the University of Queensland, uh, funding research into uh, cures, uh, and also do a lot of work in providing support to those people uh, that suffer from arthritis uh, with online workshops and so on and so forth. Hmm. Um, so it's, as you say, everybody knows somebody with arthritis, and most people will suffer from it to a degree in their lives so it's a very important thing to be focusing on yeah de- definitely i agree and uh well sounds like uh arthritis queensland uh are doing very well having you on the board and uh and it's it's nice to know that that is moving forward in a big way so and consistently uh like you said striving for research and, and looking for new opportunities to try and ease suffering and maybe uh improve the lives of, of those people with arthritis yep absolutely excellent now, I think it's safe to say that you, well, it's definitely true to say that you've been a bit of a globetrotter, and I suspect there's still opportunities to still be a globetrotter, uh, having lived in a number of countries. Uh, now that you've uh, potentially settled in what is, you know, uh, objectively the best country of all, no, uh, what would you say has been another favourite place? What is, what's been one of your top favourite places to live? And not only that how do you think uh, the you know you've, you've done a lot of lived, lived in so many different cities and places how do you think the experiences that you've gathered and, and gained and lived and and breathed during all those different uh, atmospheres and surroundings how do you think those experiences have shaped you as a person in, in a sense of how different is the david cans now versus the david cans before you traveled and, and lived in all those different places oh that's an interesting question um no, when you talk about the fact that I'm a, a persistent traveller, uh, it actually, uh, if I can, as a quick aside, reminds me of my father, um, who was uh, born in uh, a wee village in Scotland, and it was a mining village which had been built by the local mine, coal mine, uh, and all the families lived in these two up, two down houses. And he was one of uh, seven children. But uh, my grandmother used to have this inbuilt urge to, to move. And every year or two, they would actually move from one house in the village to another one. Oh, okay. The, the amazing thing about this is they were all the same design. So it wasn't uh-huh. like she was getting more space or anything. She was just moving from one to another because she wanted to move. And there have got to be a saying in the uh, village, uh, have you heard? Have you heard what? Says, the cairns are flitting again. <laughs> flitting is a Scottish word for you're running away to escape your creditors, right? So oh, you're... okay. I thought it just meant maybe moving or shifting. Oh, so, so, so the cairns are flitting again uh, is, would probably be the title of my autobiography when I get to write it. Oh, there you go. But uh, so, yeah, I think it's... it's 
something built into the genes there. Um, and I started traveling really uh, when I was uh, in my early 20s with a desire to experience new things and new places. And I've been fortunate in that I initially trained as an accountant, and that is a very transportable skill around the world. Uh, so I was able to move from job to job pretty easily with that uh, qualification. And the thing that would drive me on was partly career progression, but also I just really enjoyed the different sites, the different cultures, uh, the different experiences you get in different countries. You know, if I hadn't been doing that, I would never have come across the city of Venice, for example, which is my all-time favorite ah. city. I just love the place. But also allowed you to compare. Uh, the, the city of Edinburgh is probably my second most favorite place, not because it's, it's where we originally came from, but it's, it is a beautiful city with a unique yes. structure and culture and a lot of history. And I would never have realized just how special it was unless I traveled to all these other places. When I look at CNN, they uh, occasionally bring up weather uh, and they show five different countries. Mm -hmm. So this is what the weather is in each country. And they change the screen and you move from Istanbul to, uh, to Rome to uh, Boston to whatever. And I, these days, enjoy looking at those screens and seeing how many of those cities have I been to. Ah, there you go. Typically, uh, I will have been to at least three. Often it will be all five. And over the five screens they will show, I would probably have been to at least 60% of the cities that they show up. And uh, just knowing what lies behind the names uh, knowing people that I still am in touch with in these places uh, and being able to conjure up the different images of pancakes in Holland or the hanging chickens in Hong Kong in the shop windows <laughs> uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, it just creates a totally different um, atmosphere around looking at what's being spoken to you or told to you on the uh, TV screens or radio. But it definitely adds a new dimension, doesn't it? When it, rather than it just be a place that is somewhere that you you know you don't have any sort of relationship to, as opposed to seeing a name, like I said, looking at the weather, or it might be a news article, uh, it could be anything, any sort of mention of a place that you have traveled to, it is instantly a little bit more intimate, whatever that, that communication is, whether it be, you know, weather and then you think of someone you know of, then you go, oh, you know, or where you've been and, oh, you know, if it's a super hot day, you can imagine the sunlight coming down and some of those beautiful places you're at or, yeah. It's, there's no question that travel, they say travel broadens the mind. I think it does that, but it also gives you a, a, a back cloth uh, on which you can paint a lot of different things as you are, uh, see things and as you write things as well well speaking of writing has that something that has 
always been a part of your life? Or I know you mentioned that you know the uh, the, the career path has, uh, or the path that careers have taken you upon, has given you the chance to you know explore that that sort of passion quite intimately recently or, or of recent. Uh, but is it something that's always been there? Like have you been writing since you were a kid, or you've always wanted to write? How has writing fit into your life well, through all of these adventures? I started writing poetry when I was, or in my early teens. In fact, I used to have a pen name, DC Galvanometer. Oh, okay. And how did did you uh, get to that name? Well, a a DC Galvanometer is a scientific measuring device Uh (laughs) within the uh, physics room. And I used to pen poems that I'd put up on the school notice board under that pen name. Um, often taking the mickey out of teachers or whatever, um, which is why it was done with a pen name. Uh, well, if it, well, if poetry is not in some form rebellious to a certain degree, it can't it can't be anything, can it? I mean, it's uh, that, that's right. That's yeah. right. So I, I started with poetry. I didn't start writing um, articles or whatever until a lot later, actually. Um, mainly because I was just too busy with what was going on. I, mm. um, as, as a youngster, I was mad keen on football, so I play a lot of football, even a, a little bit of semi-professional at times, until I broke my ankle, and then business. But I, I did pen a number of articles uh, on the business front, and it was really only when I visited Tasmania with uh, Victoria, uh, and we went down to the female factory in Hobart, and Victoria uh, was digging around to get information on a, uh, a forebear that she'd heard about who had been transported back in the 1830s. And uh, the the archivist there pulled out a book uh, and, and found uh, Marianne Goulding, who was... Uh, this uh, great 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 grandmother of Victoria's. Oh, okay, that's and incredible. it was uh, fascinating to see that, uh, and really, um, it really sparked a, a, a flame in in my imagination, because up until then, we'd known about this, but it was just simple facts on a piece of paper, uh, you know, born around this date. Uh, came out on this ship on that date. But I decided at that time, just, I can remember it very clearly, uh, reading that it was a warm day, um, there was a palm tree outside that was being ruffled by the wind. All can remember it very clearly. And I said, I'm I'm going to do the research to to put some life around this uh, person. And that began as a uh, research project and it developed to the point where I said, look, if, the, if I'm going to do this properly, I not only need to do the detective work to figure out what uh, Mary Ann's life was all about, uh, but I also need to start putting some colour, uh, some life around these bare facts to create a 3D character. Uh, so I, I moved from research into um, writing this book, which uh, just 
took on a mind of its own, actually. Well, and, that's quite quite interesting that uh, of all the places you've travelled and lived, uh, an archivist room in, in Tasmania or a Hobart, I would say it was the seed of your writing, but uh, was the cannon that launched you into the, the full steam ahead? Yeah, it, it's very much so. It's, um, But I think maybe not uh, that surprising because... You know, you can write, and, and there are obviously some very good travel writers around, uh, but you can write about places and things and ideas. But the, the thing that really um, brings life and uh, power to, to a, a book, from my perspective, is a character, is the person and the people and their interactions with each other. And that's what kicked this off. It was seeing Mary Ann Golding, a name on a piece of paper, and to see the uh, archivist bring out this a record uh, written almost 200 years ago, uh, describing the penalties that she'd been given, the, the wrongdoings, the, uh, the obvious fiery passion and resistance that uh, she brought to, to this situation. Here was somebody worth writing about. So even though traveling clearly helps, as I say, build a back cloth for you, I, I think it's only something you can paint the colors and, and the emotions of individuals on. Mm. I like that. I like that you talk about bringing color to, or, or at least three D elements to a character. And it's interesting because uh, we have a, uh, a well, it's a historical. Oh, I guess you would call it a mini museum here in one of the ports of Adelaide or Port Adelaide. And not going back as far as eighteen hundreds, but you can, uh, f- you know, the people that immigrated, you know, to the, to the city here over the last fifty, sixty years, um, you can. There's a service there that allow you to. They'll look up the name and, and they'll find the actual date of the ship that are, when it arrived. And usually, I believe they took a photo of every ship as it arrived, so that there's an archive. So you can actually get a photo of the the ship that you were on if you were to go and if you immigrated here, you could go back and find it. Or I was going to do that something for uh, my mother's side of the family who immigrated from Holland. Uh, so yeah, it's a unique thing, and and when you go in there, you can flick through the photos of all the all the the families and the people coming off the boats that were you know chose to come here, and uh, and it does it brings a little bit of colour to to the history rather than having being boring uh, facts or figures. Yes, it's uh, in fact Australia is very well endowed with its uh, historical records, um, you know maybe because it's a relatively short history compared to. And small population, yeah. But um, th- there is a lot of information there, uh, which I found very helpful, of course. But the, the thing that you find out very quickly when you start doing the research is that what appears to be the case initially often is not what it, it was the true situation. Uh, for example, you can research a name, uh, and we were given a name by one of Victoria's uh, cousins, uh, uh, Robert Bright, who was the person who eventually married Mary Ann. Uh, and she had done a bit of research, and she concluded that Robert Bright had been born in Cambridge in England 
on a certain date. And we actually did some work. I even commissioned uh, somebody to do some research for me, only to find out uh, about three months later that this was the wrong Robert Bright. Oh, oops. <laughs> another Robert Bright, also born in Cambridge, within about six months of this guy, um, who was the real one that had been transported. And very different story. And when you started researching him, you, you managed to find out a lot of very different things. So you've got to be very careful when you do the research that what you're looking for is real and ideally you want to triangulate information so that you can cross-reference and validate and verify. Yeah, definitely. I I, I uh, had the pleasure of interviewing someone a while back who worked as a, well, who was a historian and worked over in uh, London for a while there as a bit of a guide through the military museum, etc. And uh, But he was saying, you know, when it came to his research, it was, you know, you, you're basically pulling at little threads that will eventually, you know, uh, you, you pull apart the whole tapestry and that's the only way to find out. But some threads will just pluck away and be fluff and other threads will actually lead you on the right way. And uh, you just the only way to find out is by pluck, pluck, pluck and, tri- and like I said, triangulate, approach from different angles. Until... That's, that's a very good analogy. You obviously have a number of book releases and it's very clear that, yeah, yeah you know, your love of history, um, you have, oh, sorry, love of history. And there's a, there's a great deal of precision when it comes to representing lifestyles and politics of times past when it comes to your work. Um, but before before we jump into those, you know, those, some of those themes and plots of some of your books, I was wondering, get a little bit serious here, it's, I'd like to dive into something that you've written recently, I, I suspect recently, uh, for your website as part of your blog. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I, you've written that... Uh, during one of, I suspect, many uh, meaningful uh, or deep conversations, for want of a better word, with your father, who I understand served with the uh, Black Watch during the Second World War, you said he would repeat Evelyn Hall's words describing a Voltaire's defence of Helvidius, which was, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Now, you've also written in one of your blogs, and this is something I've, I really found this very powerful, what you wrote, and that is, the unregulated Orwellian internet has unleashed a world of lies, distortions, disinformation, manufactured conspiracies that slither across the ether to be devoured by masses of people who have no desire to think on their validity or veracity, a poison seeking to feed prejudices like a salve to a festering wound. In an age where economic inequality has never been greater in our democracies and is steadily getting worse, are we building a Blade Runner scenario, a snarling, embittered, violent underclass? That was, uh, uh, damn, that's, that, that packs a punch, those uh, those words struck together. And I'm just wondering, from for your personal opinion, of course, uh, David, taking scientific proofs and theories out of the equation, which I think is very important when talking about things like this, do you feel that Evelyn's statement is still an important one or... You know, now that we're in this new frontier of technology and social media and, and all those, you know, uh, intercontinental communications, do you think the concept has become somewhat of a Trojan horse, which is actually causing more damage than good? Well, uh, I, I've written on and around this subject uh, a number of times. Um, I, I actually, having worked in technology most of my life, so and being very much involved in uh, social media as a result. 
Um, I guess I'm closer to that than some people and, and aware of what's underlying it, perhaps better than many. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe that the internet has become uh, too unregulated. If you look at the comparison between traditional news media and the internet, newspapers are governed by regulations in most democracies. I should say in all democracies, there's regulations of one kind or another. Uh, And the the regulations are generally aimed at ensuring that the newspaper is talking about factual information, that it is uh, true, uh, and that it is balanced. In fact, in the USA, until I think the Reagan era, there was a law in place that required uh, newspapers to be balanced, although that has since been repealed. But the internet has no such um, responsibility around um, veracity of uh, the information that is appearing on their site. I believe the internet companies, companies like Facebook, Twitter, should all be uh, regulated by similar sorts of legislation that says, look, you cannot just disseminate falsehoods, uh, particularly those that could be dangerous, like, for example, uh, all of the strange and weird and wonderful uh, things that have been said around COVID. I was listening even yesterday to somebody on a Fox News show damning uh, Fauci because he said that people should wash their hands. And he's saying, hey, this is an airborne disease, so washing your hands is stupid. Uh, And he couldn't be further from the truth if you look at the facts and the scientific research. But do you you think it's uh, today we still should follow that path of defending that person's right to say that? Or do you think uh, we have to take away Evelyn's statement and and replace something brand new? As I said in uh, that particular uh, article that you were quoting from, mm-hmm. uh, when my father was uh, talking about that, uh, it was a different age. Um, you, you would not expect to see newspapers promulgating obvious lies, or maybe not so obvious lies. Uh, you wouldn't expect the BBC to be coming out with uh, programs that uh, could not be relied upon for factual uh, veracity. Um, Nowadays, the media has gone wild. Um, You cannot trust what you see on any digital platform without double checking, where does this come from? Uh, Is it true or not? Um, And that that is, uh, that just undercuts the whole premise of uh, that argument around um, everybody should be able to say whatever they want um, without without fear or favour. It's fine if you're saying something that is not damaging to other people, but if if it is going to damage other people, like libel laws, um, um, you know, you, you should make sure that 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 is stopped. Now, it's a thin line between that and uh, censorship 
uh, of, of everything and, and all things. So it's a very difficult, uh, very difficult position to uh, reach a conclusion on. But there's no question in my mind that we have gone much too far to the, to the other side of the ledger uh, at the moment, and it needs to be uh, brought back under control. So do, do I think that it's important that people should be able to say what they think um, and to, to have different views to other people? Um, yes, I do. But at the same time, I, I think it needs to be something that is not uh, dangerous or damaging to other people uh, because it is based on a false, uh, deliberately false premise in many cases. Well, so, I think that goes more to, I, I mean, obviously it's a fascinating topic and something we could talk about for hours, but you know, on the surface, I think it goes more to, from my perspective, the, the disintegration of journalism in the last 20 years, because, you know, I mean, for example, I, I have no doubt that I've, if I bring up, for example, news.com.au right now, one, the headlines would be just atrocious, and two, I could guarantee you, even just on that front page, I'd find typos and um you know blaring mistakes where some they've just copied and pasted from other news sources and that is you know supposedly uh, one of the primary news sources in australia on the internet so it is ridiculous in the sense of i don't think journalism is shining a torch however the, you know it's funny the internet is a double-edged sword isn't it i mean f it has information on there that can be accessed which is you know well researched uh you know uh upload digitized copies or versions of you know very important documents and educational you know encyclopedias all that sort of stuff so the information is there the, the, for somebody who wants to find it as is things like news.com.au and twitter and facebook so really it comes down to freedom of choice which is a tricky one of what you want to do with the internet when you when you when you turn on your computer what? or where you want to get your information from and is that and it's like it's almost like a high school schoolyard at lunchtime where you know a lot of when i grew up that's where you learn a lot of things and i suspect a lot of things i got told by mates was incorrect and passed yeah. on uh, well, it's, it's like that now isn't it? a global global lunchtime having a chat so uh, no i i uh, totally endorse your comments on journalism today uh it, it used to be a profession that was looked up to i'm not so much sure that it is today as it was and also, I, I agree with you that there are many good things about the internet. And on balance, it's hard to say whether it's been positive or negative. Um, I probably err on the side of positive um, overall. But uh, I think the, the, maybe the, the underlying issue here, Darren, is less the internet, journalism and... Um, uh, that general area than it is the the education of people to be able to critically look at uh, things they're being shown or told. Yes, yes, I um, see, definitely. And, you know, that, that is really the source of problems. Uh, and until that gets resolved, uh, I guess we're, we're never really going to get uh, a, a good solution. It's, I, I remember... A few years ago now, uh, I was actually um, in a meeting. I was on a panel, and somebody on, from the audience um, 
posed the question, do you think that uh, we should uh, restrict the ability of people to vote if they're unable to demonstrate certain capabilities? That's an interesting question. And my response to it was, uh, no, I don't. Um, It's the minute you start restricting the ability of people to cast their vote for a particular view or person uh, to represent their views, um, it's a slippery slope down to autocratic uh, management. And I think that that's a bit of a loaded question too, isn't it? Because I mean, yeah, you, that that there's some sort of argument for the basis of that question. If it was a situation where that person's vote was a deciding vote, but as far as a general vote, well, you know, ten mistakes don't. It's nothing. Uh, you know, ten mistakes has no importance. Uh, ten ten million votes is no accident. So it's- yeah, it's. Um... As you say, this is a, a sort of topic that uh, is worth a dinner and a couple of bottles of wine and a <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and and I'm I'm glad you said uh, that uh, you know part of your approach to this sort of obviously uh, rabbit hole pro uh, program problem is you know or, or at least one possible solution is educating people with the ability to ascertain what is right and what is wrong or at least search for truth or at least identify what might be um, not necessarily untruths because they they're not always intentional but but intentional uh, misleads etc but so I just wanted to touch on one more serious question before we dive any books uh, because we uh, Veronica and I we've been having discussions recently and uh you know through as a result of different conversations with authors about possible monsters within us all and you know how those that those proverbial or symbolic or philosophical monsters might manifest in real life and you know we've also chatted about the paradox of you know where you see different cultures uh, you know even today and and going back through time to certain at certain times agreeing to peace, so agreeing to live in peace, but as part of that peaceful agreement, they've also equally both agree to abandon that peace uh, should the need to defend truth arise, even if both sides feel like they have the truth, which of course is the paradox within the paradox. Mm -hmm. So, you know, peace is only peace until you decide that someone's infringing on something that you feel is true, and but you've got two people thinking that something's true or two cultures think something's true peace goes out the window so uh and i think that has some kind of relationship with the idea to sort of turning it around to today's discussion and it has some sort of relationship with the idea that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it i'm wondering is that something that we don't learn from history and, and are doomed to repeat or is conflict inevitable when truth is really the caveat for war within peace um because if two people feel like their truth is being hindered upon or they want to argue about truth of course then th- that justifies war so i'm just wondering your thought on that and also because you come from a, a technology background i'm wondering moving forward from a technological standpoint so let's assume that we are by taking baby steps we're still going through teething problems with internet and all that do you think we're going to reach a point where science itself is going to eventually become an all-encompassing for want of better of a word uh, religion and the, across all cultures and then truth can't be argued because one one is two fire makes water boil there's no there's no subjective nature to that truth and therefore that caveat of war within peace can slowly be wedged out of this uh, crazy rat race they are 
some really fascinating uh, things you've just talked through there. F first of all, is conflict inbuilt in uh, society? Um, sadly, I think it is because what you have is a world filled with people, each with different um, perceptions, ideas, um, personalities. Um, you know, if you look at uh, Putin and uh, Russia today, I think Putin was hell-bent on invading Ukraine back when the war fell in uh, Berlin. Uh, and nothing was going to change that because for him, uh, his personal truth is that Russia needs to expand and, and be dominant over all the Slavic nations and maybe further. Um, so truth is, while it's a word that is defined in the dictionary, it actually uh, has a, an element of uh, ideology and a perception in it. Uh, it's not a fact uh, such as, you know, an atom uh, can be described as a factual item. So I unfortunately think the best that we can do uh, is, such as the European Union did after the Second World War, uh, do your best to bring people together and to work together to improve the lot of the, of the whole the best way you can and put the institutions in place to make conflict more difficult. But um, I don't think it can ever be eliminated, unfortunately. Uh, and people will always have different views. Uh, and because of the personalities of people, and we've met them all, some will not be able to control that and it will move into violence of one kind or another. Mm. But it's it's a, a function of life. It's a reality that we have to live with and do our best to mitigate against. Regarding the, um, the idea that science could become, uh, if you like, as you said, a religion where um, fact-based uh, arguments become the truth. Uh, I'm actually reading a book right now by uh, Kai-Fu Lee uh, on artificial intelligence called AI 2041. And it's fascinating what's going on in the AI space and where it's going. But one of the things that uh, he talks about is that using artificial intelligence, people will be able to develop um, and, and transmit their ideas and get them embedded into other things going on around them. Um, and their truth then becomes something that is part and parcel of everyday life of everyone else through this um, artificial intelligence uh, software that uh, learns from what this person believes is true and therefore transmits it back as truth to, to everybody else. Oh, so in effect, humans become the cloud as opposed to... Uh, that's a good way of thinking. Yeah, it's um, interesting. But uh, so you know, science is not the uh, is not the hard fact based um, thing that uh, we're taught at school. 
um, it's getting to be more and more something that reflects back uh, what it is seeing in the world. Again, that's the second evening with our dinner and wine, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'd like to think that in a couple hundred years we'd be, you know, speaking from a global perspective, we'll be a, shall we say, a science-based species with religion and art as opposed to a religious-based species with science and art. And I think there's a very clear distinction as far as what that means, you know, moving forward in the future. Uh, I hope it means that, you know, because I'd, I'd hate for a religion and, and the wonders of all the, all those, uh, all that it encompassed to be to disappear. But I, I, but I think if we, if every country uh, put on the top of the pyramid of importance, science in the sense of that way, because that way it becomes a universal language, which it already is to a certain degree, then arguments can be easily, to most, uh, most times, can be easily, uh, I guess, uh, reduced, I suppose, or even eliminated, because if uh, you you can both attack the same problem, and if someone gets a an answer to that problem, then of course the opportunity is there to, to disprove it, and that's how we do it, and that's how we and and of course the more you argue, the smarter we all become, because science is all about disproving and 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 approving and and improving. So, but uh, yes, fingers crossed, the future we can uh, see a light at the end of the tunnel held by uh, possible robot AI intelligence with fantastic glow sticks. But, you know, one of the cool things about uh, having the opportunity to talk to amazing authors like yourself, we can talk about the future AI and the philosophies of whether, you know, truth should be defended at all costs. And at the same time, dive straight into a discussion of your books, which is taking us back in time a little bit from where we're just talking about the future and into some, well, I wouldn't say lighthearted, not at all, but a little bit of fun to start with because I want to start with one of your books called Bush Ranger Gold, the McLover Gold Escort Robbery. Uh-huh. And now the, the book uh, description reads, in 1853, Australia was robbed by the robbery of a 6,000 pounds, or sorry, robbery of 6,000 pounds of gold from an escorted shipment on a country road heading from the McLover Goldfields to Melbourne. Within days, 400 men were searching for the bush, so, sorry, were searching the bush for the audacious bush rangers who numbered between 6 and 15, depending on, a, on who was telling the story. So I just want to know what inspired that book. And deep down, are you on the side of the bush rangers or the law? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, um, well, what inspired it actually is in The Helot's Tale, I actually talk about this. Um, a knock-on effect from this uh, robbery uh, because uh, Robert Bright gets caught up in it. So I'd, as part of my research, I'd come across this, uh, been reading newspapers at the time and so on and so forth. Uh, so I referred to it and, and did a little bit of research uh, as I was writing uh, The Hellet's Tale. Uh, so I parked it at the back of my mind. And when I'd finished, I then went uh, and look further into it. And it's really quite a fascinating story. Um, the, um, the premise of the book is obviously that you've got the fact of this um, uh, robbery taking place. Um, but the leader of it all is a guy called Joe Gray. And Joe Gray just disappears from history after this uh, event. He, he, they didn't catch him. Uh, they caught others. They didn't catch him, uh, and he disappeared. Now, there was also a uh, reasonably well-known bushranger of the time called uh, Joe Gardner, 
And Gardner, he served time in prison prior to this uh, gold robbery. And then when he when he escaped and got out, he disappeared from, from view while this uh, McIver gold robbery took place. So there's no record of what he did during that time other than one tantalizing newspaper article that talks about Joe Gardner being discovered in a hotel with a prostitute by the local sheriff and admitting that he was part of the robbery. Oh, that's um, an interesting admission to be making. Yeah, but then he disappeared again. Uh, they, he wasn't arrested, he just disappeared again. And it's, you know, I, I've no way of proving this, but uh, the book is written on the basis that Joe Gray was Joe Gardner. Um, and it, it carries on through this, uh, what, what happens with him, how he puts the gang together, the, the, the event itself and what led up to it and what happened afterwards. And there was a, another mystery at the end of it with uh, the Madagascar, the ship Madagascar, which on which the gold or some of the gold was apparently stored, which just disappeared as well. Um, so it's it was the whole story I found quite captivating. And um, in fact, my wife thinks that's the, the, the best book I've written so far. <laughs> okay. So that was actually... Uh... So that that title was actually written prior. Oh, sorry, post the Hillet's Tale book. Yes, was. Is that right? Was. Ah, ah, there you go. I thought, yeah, I was under the impression Push Ranger Gold was one of the first. Well, that, that's interesting. And you mentioned it's a spin-off from the Hillet's Tale, of which there are currently two books: the Hillet's Tale book one, yep. Downfall, and of course the Hillet's uh, book two, which is of course um, Downfall. Sorry, uh, yeah, book two, Downfall. What uh, when it comes to those two books uh, now? They both sort of start with a description or at least a tagline that is, uh, how would you respond if your death sentence was committed, sorry, commuted to life on an island prison half a world away? So very quickly before we dive into the, the Hellas Tales adventure, looking back at the concept of uh, shiploads of convicts and you know sending them over to what was Van Diemen's Land or what, what would become known as Australia, do you think it's still a case, looking back from 2022, that this... Uh, New land that we know as Australia um, was actually considered an island prison, or do you think the convicts were always just going to be used for building foundations of what was going to be a new colony for the British? In which case, it wasn't actually a prison, was it? Well, I think Tasmania. I wouldn't say the same for uh, mainland Australia. Mm, possibly, you're right there. Yeah, Tasmania was very much constructed as a, uh, as an island prison. Um, if you look at um, uh, the governor Arthur at the time, uh, he put in place uh, a very strict regime as to how these convicts were going to be managed uh, and controlled, um, right down to geographic constraints. Um, you know, we we generally look at Port Arthur and think about that as the um, the core of what happened during the period of transportation. But the, the reality is that most people didn't go to Port Arthur. Most convicts weren't, um, didn't go through the, the rigors of Norfolk Island or whatever. Uh, most of them were sent out on assignment uh, to free settlers and government uh, to help, as you say, build the 
economy of the time. And they had a degree of freedom, unquestionably, uh, within that uh, structure. But the reason the book is called The Helot's Tale is because um, a helot is, is, goes back to the uh, times of the Greeks and the Athenians, where the helot was a class of person between a slave and a free man. Uh, and the helot, therefore, is a pretty good description of what the convicts were, particularly mm, those that were sent out on assignment, that they did have elements of freedom, but they were very restricted. Uh, and it must have been very, um, very tough for somebody with the, the character of Mary Ann, for example, to buckle under to that, as was evidenced by the number of times she uh, was put into solitary confinement and sent back to prison and so on during her uh, period of assignment. But uh, no, I think an island prison is a, is a fair enough description. But having said that, life wasn't that great back in England either. No, I was going to say, I could, it must have been an interesting contrast, um, you know, to, to go from a city that was probably not in the best state at that time and very overcrowded and very um, divisive, but you know, between the different classes and opportunities for, for those wanting to, you know, no longer be part of the you know, lower or poor class, no opportunities there. And then contrast that with being a convict, but being in a brand new land of open space and open skies and probably a lot better weather than they'd been used to, although could have been back very brutal back then too, but uh, interesting contrast nonetheless. Well, in fact, if you go back and you read through some of the uh, evidence presented to commissions uh, that was set up in, uh, in England, there were a number of uh, convicts who wanted to be transported and some who even, in fact, there was one guy um, who I write about who was uh, involved in the Bushranger Gold story, whose brother was transported. And he himself then, I suspect deliberately, uh, committed a crime and was transported himself. And they both ended up in uh, Tasmania together, or Van Diemen's Land as it was. So it compared to life for many in England in, in a very hierarchical, class-conscious, inequitable society where justice was a, just a word, not a reality. Um, Australia wasn't a bad uh, place to go, even if you had to serve seven or 14 years uh, before you got your freedom. And then on top of it, of course, uh, you had the gold rush. Uh, which created opportunities for people uh, to, to totally change their lives with just scrabbling in the dirt for something. Mm, and, and, and including a few bush rangers that don't mind stopping the gold bars on the way as well. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't like the scrabbling bit. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, it, it was a win-win, really, wasn't it? The, the, uh, the, the, the gold miners, they got paid for their gold, and then uh, <laughs> the bush rangers, they got the gold, and the only one out of pocket was the ones that had pockets that were always full anyway. Yeah. So we'd win, <laughs> so, but uh, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, without giving too much away, of course, um, 
when it comes to the Hellas tale book one and two, what amazing adventures, what awesome insights are awaiting uh, all those you know historical fiction readers out there who would love to dive into the book what are that what's uh what's waiting for them what's what, what stories what sights sounds what's the big uh adventure for, to, to be open the pages well i think the um the story starts in england of course with uh, marianne and robert starts from their births uh which is at the beginning of the 1800s uh, marianne was born in london and Robert, as we've talked earlier, was born in Cambridge in the country. Um, but London at that time was a fascinating place, and there's a lot of description around uh, what uh, London is like, and, and people have told me that it has uh, echoes and flavours of Dickens. Uh, oh, that's a good, good little uh, compliment to have. Yes, yes, and, and, and not by chance, I have to add. Um, but, but London at that time, uh, you know, Covent Garden Market, uh, the, the way things were changing was quite mind-blowing with what was going on around then. I'm, I'm not going to get into the details, but uh, so there's a lot of a description in the first book around uh, life in London growing up uh, and uh, leading up to their, their conviction ultimately. And also in the country because... There were things that went on. You know, I thought I was pretty well educated at school in history, but there are things that I never knew about, uh, hadn't been taught about. So, for example, the swing riots in uh, England were um, pretty substantial rebellion, and one of several that happened in Europe around that time as the, the underclass fought back and said, you know, we're just not going to take it anymore. And I'd never been taught anything about um, uh, the swing riots. So I talk a bit about that, for example. Uh, another thing that uh, I didn't know about was that the Houses of Parliament burnt down around this time. I'd never heard that before either. Mm. Um, so to describe some of that too. So the, the, the beginning of the book has a lot of information around what life was like uh, for uh, a couple of people in the underclass uh, in England uh, in the early 1830s, which um, I personally find very interesting, and other people have also said the same thing. Then you've got the, um, the journey out. I was very fortunate in that in going through the research, I discovered a journal written by the surgeon on Mary Ann's boat uh, that came out. Um, and there's a lot of detail in there about what happened on the journey coming out. But then you, you move on to the gold rush. Um, gold rush uh, was life-changing event for so many people and nation-changing event for Australia. Uh, that's really what country was built upon and I find that the whole when you put the whole thing together what you're left with is a sense of this indomitable courage displayed by so many people in the face of adversity uh, that really underpins uh, the the character of, of the of Australia today it's uh, it's a 
country that's rightly proud of its resilience and its ability to overcome adversity and build a good life for people. And I think that comes out from the book. And that there's, as I say, there's lots of events. There's, uh, there's uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's a bush ranger attack. There's uh, the Eureka stockade uh, is involved in it. There's um, the first test match when Australia actually beat England uh, in Melbourne. Um, there's a lot of things going on. It, it's, it's, it's just non-stop things happen. Yeah, it sounds jam-packed. And uh, you're right, it is a, you know, Australia does have, a, I guess, I wouldn't say a unique history, but it is a very interesting history in the sense of uh, we had to play catch-up. We were late to the party. Uh, when you think about, we, you know, it was, you know, as far from the European perspective, of course, there was nothing here as far as any connection to the, the new world that they'd come from. Right. And from scratch had to not only, you know, develop uh, cities and villages and structures and society and banking and, and all that jazz, but also build it and bring it up to speed to the rest of the world, which is, uh, you know, when we it's not like we're 100 years behind everybody. So, yeah, quite a challenge. Yeah. You know, and that's doing that with a lot of flies and a lot of heat. <laughs> <laughs> and there were no good good quality thongs back then, so... No, no air conditioning. <laughs> no, no. And having spent time out in the desert and during summer, um, yeah, I tilt my hat, especially, you know, having climbed down some opal mining holes, you know, scratched out in the, in the early days that have just been left there and, you know, the heat. And I just could not imagine, you know, even, you know, you could be... Thirsty and your water's probably 35 40 degrees. Um, yeah. how do you, how do you, you know? So, yeah, my my uh, heart goes out to all, all those men and ladies that uh persevered through all that those extreme conditions, whether it be the heat, whether it be the cold, whether it be the relentless tropics and, and mozzies and bugs, or whether it be the hot desert winds and scorpions and snakes and spiders. But uh, yeah, anyways, from some, some from all of that, we've got uh, our, our modern cities and uh, unique culture, definitely. Yeah, and these cities, uh, again, uh, this comes out in the book, they grew up in a matter of a few years with the gold rush. Like uh, places like Bendigo would transform from tents into a city with uh, impressive buildings uh, in two, three years. It was quite dramatic how everything changed. Of course, most of these people had come from Europe there was fair Chinese uh, immigration well around that time, but the, uh, the, the the stories about not being able to get tea, so people would drink uh, eucalyptus leaves dipped in hot water. That would be their tea, for example. Oh, okay. So a lot of very interesting, uh, what I find interesting, information about what life was like for people at those times. And there were some very traumatic experiences. Of course. Wildfires, floods, um, children dying from disease or accidents, etc. Um, and I suspect, you know, I, I know that there would have been a lot of heartache and uh, a lot of challenges, but there would have been some luck out there too, like the uh, the first people to who ran out of tea or couldn't get tea and stumbled upon uh, lemon myrtle, uh, which I think it makes a, is, uh, would make a delicious drink. So, yeah, so there, there would have been some lucky people and, of course, the lucky people with the gold. But isn't it fascinating? Gold is, wow, it's just, uh, it's just a, 
a feature of uh, the human progression, really, isn't it? Uh, something um, obviously it's scarce, but it's shiny, and uh, I think if you trace gold, it has a story to tell in just about every society at some point, and it's uh, and, and uh, still here in Australia too. And uh, and I believe uh, that I think I read the other day that there was murmurs of a, a slight resurgence in a bit of a gold rush in, in Victoria there. So whether that's true or not, or whether it's just some uh, fake news, just because to brew well, up well, a little bit of uh, tourism. Mine. Yeah, they're still mining, so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I've heard secrets, or secrets, I've heard that huge deposits of gold have been found that have been sealed to avoid, you know, um, big, you know, unwanted fluctuations in, in the actual gold price market. Whether that's true or not, again, that's not the kind of information you can drill down on the internet. It's a uh, hearsay. So, no, no, <laughs> and we've got no journalists to follow it up either. <laughs> <laughs> now, the uh, the Hellet's Tale, or book one and two, they take place, uh, I believe, between 1813 and 1880. So um, now it says it's it was an age of, or you, you say it was an age of haves and have-nots and a period when class really mattered, where corruption was endemic of the desperate state of the poor that Dickens wrote about and the creation of a criminal class, many of whom were forced into stealing from the world to do simply to survive. Do you think uh, that quote is purely for the 1813 to 1880, or do you think it could apply to 2022? <laughs> I think certainly not to the same degree. Um, we're talking about uh, very different environments in that respect. Um, but there's no question that uh, in this day and age, the, uh, the inequality between those at the top of the ladder and those at the bottom has probably never been bigger at this mm, last mm. hundred years. Um, and I believe that is uh, fundamentally wrong. So, for example, uh, for CEOs of companies to be pulling down many millions of dollars, and yet there's a worker who's struggling to get to pay their energy bill uh, on their uh, income uh, in the same company, uh, that, that just doesn't feel right to me. I've been fortunate in um, having success in uh, business, but I remember uh, there was one uh, situation where uh, we sold the company to another company, um, and there were a number of people um, in the company that weren't benefiting from it, uh, you know, the, the top management got their uh, stock options, got their bonuses or whatever. But the uh, some of the people in the accounting department um, getting nothing at all. And I actually um, felt that was wrong. And uh, in the end, I, I took less and made sure they got something um, because I just wasn't comfortable uh, with that disparity. I don't think there's anyone else that did it. But so. No, it goes without saying. I think that, that uh, there should be more people like yourself. Uh, yes, and that, that kind of goes back to the, those discussions we've been having uh, previously about that monster inside of us all and uh, how some of us, you know, let it out and some of us hold it back. Um, mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I think the, there is this huge divide and, and that divide's only possible, really, when people are happy to be aware of the damage they're doing to other people's lives and not have any overall 
you know, overly major concerns. And that's, 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 that's a monstrous thing to do, realistically. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd love to muck over a bunch of people and, and uh, make sure I've got enough money to have a ball and travel around the world. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I mean, I could if I wanted to. There, you know, within us all, I think is the, you know, there's nothing physically stopping you. Uh, it's only the decisions you make. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that. Well, uh, all... But then, but, but then, that, you know, you with uh, with the quote, uh, you know, where corruption was endemic, and uh, for for those divisions between, you know, the haves and have nots be no greater than today, that that also can only be when there's so much corruption. So maybe it's not too different to back then. Well, it's just it's just a little bit more uh, glamorous today, the illusion. Uh, yes, I think so. Although when you look back to uh, the, the late 18th century, uh, early 19th century, particularly for people living in the country, uh, farm laborers and so on, their wages uh, would often be cut, not, not just maintained, without any regard to their cost of living. And the, with the uh, change in uh, legislation uh, in, in, the, in England at that time, uh, with the Enclosures Act, uh, it forced a lot of people to live on charity. There was no way they could uh, survive without uh, charitable support. And it got to the point where, uh, as I talk about in the book, uh, you could get a guy who had been very successful as a, um, a farm hand or farm uh, supervisor, um, but because he was earning above a certain level, uh, he was not eligible for the parish uh, charity. Um, and when he lost that job. He was unable to survive because he had no income. The charities ignored him, uh, and he and his family just starved. Mm. Um, now, we're not in the, the more advanced democracies. I don't think we're at that level. But no. Having said that, you know, there's when you look at the medical cost. In the USA, for example, there are people regularly bankrupted because they can't afford their uh, hospital bills or surgeon's bills or whatever. Um, so you wonder what they do. Uh, and if they were given the opportunity to um, cross the line uh, to, to keep their family together, would you do it? Oh, there's a question mm, for you. Yeah, def- exactly. And and is there the right time to bring out the monster? Yeah, the, the American health system, I mean, I don't know intimately. I've been over there. It, but one thing that strikes me as odd is the idea that, you know, from a medical perspective, you know, I thought the idea was, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, and that is, you know, to not do any harm, mm-hmm. uh, had hospital uh, administration and, you know, uh, the management side of things taken on that oath, then they wouldn't have uh, agreed to pay the the insurance company's astronomical rates. But it, they've, just, they've gone to bed, haven't they? They Both uh, both the hospital administration and the uh, insurance companies have a symbiotic relationship to make a lot of money. And, you know, again, with, uh, no, without any care for the damage they're doing to lives, which is, uh, yeah, it's such a strange thing. We are very, very 
uh, unknowable creatures, us human beings, because we, we could do so much good, we could do so much bad, and it, uh, I don't think we're ever going to find answers to something where we're not going to see bad. So, so, so yes. Certainly when you look around the world and see how things are done in different places, uh, as I often do, I um, am thankful for the environment we have in Australia and the structures in place. Uh, I think Australia is doing a very good job of balancing all of the uh, the, the conflicting demands on, of society. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And But when you do travel a little bit and when you do see other countries, you know, with these big populations and, you know, that comes with its own issues as well. I always think of Australia as that sandpit with uh, four little kids and only three balls. It's doable. There's not, you know, there's going to be a tear here and there, but otherwise. But if you've got 20 kids in a sandpit and only six balls, it's on. You know, it's going to be chaos. And uh, I think that's that's what I see. I see, you know, uh, supposed grown adults around the world acting like those, you know, screaming, crying kids in the sandpit. And that's uh, and that's and, and then so when you know when I read or and there's talk of potential war or we do have conflict, it's uh, it's like well there you go those you know those little brats in the sandpit are at it again. Um, and that's that's as far as we've come for some for some of us. Nothing but overgrown kids in sandpits yeah, throwing I think sand. As, as we move uh, through the next decade and more, that sandpit uh, is going to be a, a pool of water. Because I think water is going to become the new gold uh, as the years go by. Uh, yeah, you could be right. Yeah, although at the moment we've got one one continent or, or one country, should I say, uh, desperate for it. Another one that would be glad to get rid of it, haven't we? That's right. Yeah, very interesting there. But again, these are dinner topics that uh, I would, uh, I, well, I do love to sit down with a vodka and, or two or seven and, and talk about. But uh, I've got a couple more questions before, uh, before you, David, and then we'll let you go. So now I know that you have a background in technology and obviously you've lived in a lot of countries, so you've had a lot of different experiences. I'm just wondering if from the drawing all that together you've written quite a few books now you know what i'd call historical fiction or fiction based uh sorry historically based i'm curious to know if there are other genres that you're thinking of uh or at least considering writing within in in the future um i wouldn't dismiss it but right now there's a, a couple of things that i want to get out the way first um as i say i've got the uh case of the immigrant niece coming out uh, mm, that's my next question. Yes, but uh, yeah, do t- tell us a little bit uh, about the new book that's coming out. That that because it's an interesting title: "The Case of the Immigrant Niece Enter Findo Gask and Errol Rate." Yes, I, hope I said that right. Yes, that's right. The um, it's about two uh, best way to describe two Antipodean uh, Sherlock Holmesian types um, who uh, become aware of. Uh, somebody uh, a lass that's come over uh, and she's been disinherited uh, ultimately they track that down and and get into quite uh, dark waters around what's going on uh, including multiple murders um so it's it's a if you like a detective story private detective story it's with an australian flavor because it's based in uh, Melbourne, um, but it also includes time spent in Scotland, in Edinburgh, in the Scottish Highlands, uh, and in London as they track down this uh, 
particular issue and uh, finally um, end up with a uh, rather frantic search around uh, the Melbourne uh, drug dens, um, etc. So I, I won't go into any more. Than <laughs> well, it sounds like a pretty fun uh, escapade there. So it sounds like a fun avenue for, for yeah, you to write because obviously the other books would have taken a lot of research and I'm sure this one did, but well, well, uh, this, a different subject. This, this clearly had uh, some elements of research but not at the level of the other two. No, that's right, yeah, it'd be more fun. Um, but to, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do it, just to give me more room for expanding the characters. Because I found with The Hell's Tale, one of the uh, things I struggled with all the time was I wanted to create some drama or create something of a, a particular interest around the characters. But I wanted also to make sure I was writing the story of Robert Bright, Mary Ann Golding, not about a fictional character I was creating. Uh, and the the emigrant niece allowed me to develop the characters much more uh, as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, talking about what I want to do, I, I want a follow-up to that because I, I think uh, Findo and Errol are, are good characters. I've had some... Um, book clubs do, uh, or a book club, sorry, uh, do some uh, reviews on it, and uh, they, they like the characters, apparently. Uh, so I want to do more on that, put them into different situations with, with an Australian base. Uh, Victoria wants me to write a novel around Ber- the Burke and Wills ah. edition. Um, and um, that is something I may well do to... As I say, that there are books out there, good books, that describe what happened, but they're really documentaries rather than novels. Um, uh, it'd be interesting to perhaps write that from the perspective of, as I say, making it a three-dimensional story rather than two-dimensional. Yeah. Um, yeah. W- would I though write something else? I I do enjoy uh, action books like uh, David Belgett. Baldacci's books, for example. And I also enjoy uh, science fiction, um, like Asimov's Foundation and Empire series. I I could write on those topics. Uh, There's plenty of room to to go there. But uh, I think it's going to be at least a couple of years before I have the, uh, the latitude to do that. Well, it, it definitely sounds like, uh, you know, to use a, a well-overused quote, you've got, you've got your work cut out for you. Um, but considering the, you know, you said, because that's when, when I uh, was talking about other genres, because I was wondering if you might consider science fiction. Obviously, you you got a technology background, but um, your the the level of research you you've done for your books has been you know obviously has been astounding and so it would be maybe a cool thing to think about uh, doing an alternative history where perhaps uh, think of a, a a piece of today's technology somehow is discovered back in you know Victorian era and how does that affect 
the history or at least the daily lives of the the people that discover it because i think you'd be able to bring that to life in a very you know very eloquently so interesting thought yeah perhaps an ipad and by the time its battery runs out then they have to convince people that they saw stuff on the screen then uh let the mystery begin so but i don't know um but when it comes to look i, I know we've got a lot of historical fiction lovers out there who love reading all things history or and obviously all things australian because at the end of the day you know hell's tale is a story of australia and the journey to here and, and how we you know the, the the years and the heartache and the sweat and the tears that uh, helped form our nation um how can our listeners find or discover more about yourself and your writing um i actually uh, you, you've mentioned it earlier that i do uh, publish a blog about once every four to six weeks uh, sometimes that talks about uh, the books sometimes it talks about uh, my observations on what's going on in the world um but that that is the blog you can sign up for on my website and the website is uh Cairns of Finhaven, all one word, dot com, uh, and easy enough to go on there and find out more about the books, uh, and also, as I say, uh, you can read past blogs or um, get more information on what what's going on uh, in my own little study here. Ah, oh, there we go. An insight into the uh, the study where uh, Findo and Errol are about to erupt onto the world. Correct. Which I understand is uh, at this point in time scheduled for November? Yes, we're looking to uh, release it to the beginning of November. I'm Excellent. I'm um, doing some work uh, regarding uh, prepping for the launch, uh, doing a little bit of marketing here and in the UK. Wonderful, wonderful. So well, we'll definitely include the link to your website in our show notes. And uh, yeah, look, David, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being a part of the Australian Book Lovers podcast. It goes without saying, I could uh, definitely sit and talk forever. And so I guess I'm going to have to hold you to maybe a, a pinky promise that uh, next time I'm on the Gold Coast, we'll have to uh, catch up uh, over a wine and vodka and see if we can't work out the other uh, frollies of this strange planet called Earth and uh, the, the weird sandpit people that inhabit it. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, thank you so much. And it goes, you know, I wish you all the best with all the releases. And I'm sure that we've got a lot of people out there listening now that are going to be fascinated and will want to jump into the hell it's tale or maybe read about a bush ranger's uh, escapade. Although you never did say whether you were, whose side you were on. So quickly, uh, where did your heart lie on that one? I, I have to admit that uh, even though they were not the uh, shining bright characters, I'd like them to have been my... Uh, Feelings probably lean towards the Bush Rangers. Yay! There we go. I, was, I think uh, people listening were on nice edge then. <laughs> so I'm sure. So that's a beautiful, a beautiful side of the uh, yeah the equation to be. Uh, but no, thank you so much for your time. I wish you all the best with your your books in the future. And uh, yeah, hey, maybe we'll get you back on for come November when uh, the case of the immigrant niece is released. But I'd in love the meantime, to do that. Thank you, Darren. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. In the meantime, you take care. All the best for yourself, for your family, and uh, you keep on writing. And, yeah, let's see what happens for the rest of 2022. Thank you. Thank you, David Cairns, for an interesting and wide-ranging discussion with Darren. Of course, 
Darren, your discussions are always pretty wide-ranging. One thing I do remember that David said was ignore history at your peril. And interesting that they, you know, are talking about sort of the early days and the gold rushes and those kind of things because not this weekend but next weekend my hubby is off to do some detecting with a friend of mine who is a mad lapidurist like she loves the gems and stones and all those kind of things she's been up in lightning ridge looking at dinosaur bones didn't get the really big ones like they discovered not that long ago but she loves fossicking so she is off with uh yeah my husband another friend and i are going to sit back read books and drink wine so i think i got the best end of the deal well yeah yes you did but (laughs) yeah i know i thought i might get some pushback I thought I might get some pushback from you as a uh, you know a gemstone uh, person as well. So yes, that that was interesting. And look, also about the the female factory in Tassie. I've been down there. I lived down in Tassie for uh, six months or Palawa as it is, and that is a, an eerie, sad, spooky place down there. It you can feel the ghosts of all those women and children and. Yeah, it, it's a toughie. The same with Port Arthur, and I was there before the the tragedy that happened, um, you know, with the murders that went on down there. And it's, yeah, you can just feel it. Mm. Mm, something spooky about uh, old factories that aren't being mm. used in any way. Full stop. I don't know what it is because yeah. there's not there's nothing uh, there's nothing about the buildings that have anything to do with happiness. No. As, a, as a general no. rule, you know. No. So, like here, and it's, and it's been used for quite a few movie locations here in Port Adelaide. It's quite scenic now. Yeah. But a lot of the old uh, factories there and sort of industrial mm. zones sort of against mm. the water that have you know been forgotten to time, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they they do carry a certain atmosphere, and no mm. doubt buildings that have um, a little bit more history with regards to maybe extreme sort of circumstances would definitely have that extra element to atmosphere, wouldn't they? Mm, yeah, it's yeah eerie, but I did get get down some rabbit holes um, looking about what it would be like, really and truly, to be you know one of the early European settlers, and even you know around the the gold uh, rushes and things because I am in the gold fields. You know, our library is called the Goldfields Library, so we are. <laughs> in the middle of the Bendigo and Ballarat and those kind of things. And did you know that they're still discovering, like, a stack of gold um, in uh, Victoria? So, you know, current production, they're still getting 650,000 ounces of gold per annum. Oh, wow. Can you believe that? Well, I was surprised, and I probably knew this in... In primary school, went back in the... Yeah, in the gold rush, sort of, when I was learning about it. But, you know, um, that... You know, back in back in the 1850s, Victoria uh, gold deposits basically accrued for, or at least what was coming out of the ground, represented more than one third of the world's gold production yes, during the 1850s. Yes, so yeah. I dare say there's still, you know, to, to be able to be put in that position, I, I, it's hard to imagine that it was stripped bare. Yeah. Um, no, no, they still say they're really uh, every river in the world contains gold, but of course some say little that you you can't even get them. Uh, you still need a miner's license to uh, fossic. Uh, around um, for, uh, for gold in Victoria, so I'm not sure about other states, but yes. So uh, yeah, my friend of course has her. She lives up in uh, Wodonga, and so she does a lot of fossicking all around the traps. But there you go. However, I came across a really good site uh, from SBS, so sbs.com forward slash gold forward slash daily life on the diggings. Now I think there was uh, a show out uh, which dealt a lot with 
the Chinese immigrants who came over and, uh, you know, believe that kind of Melbourne was the, the new gold mountain. But it was really interesting. I think SBS have done it particularly well. You know, we, we talked about history before this. You know, what was daily life on the diggings? Because I thought, oh, were there any women out there? Were there any European women? And, of course, yes, they were. In fact, uh, yeah, there was a little bit... They kind of had almost a little bit of a liberation because had they stayed in England, they would have had to just, you know, uh, do the house and the children and, and that kind of thing. Whereas when they came out here helping on the, the gold fields and all those kind of things, there was a lot more that they could do, including uh, doing the, the gold bits and pieces. So there is also a great section contributed to this website by uh, Deanne Gilson and Tammy Gilson, who were Wadawurrung traditional custodians. And they talk about sort of the dis- disruptions of the Wadawurrung people, but also, uh, you know, and how ancestral country and, and families were, were broken and, and stripped away for generations. But they also talk about how the Wadawurrung people adapted to the new life on the gold fields. Some people worked alongside the white people. And of course, they helped them survive. They helped the white people survive by showing them how to strip bark, by you know, sharing sort of bush tucker with them. Of course, the Europeans then, you know, bought sheep and that, and they, you know, uh, then patted down all the um, the yams and those kind of things. And the uh, the Aboriginal people in that area had uh, eel nets and all those kind of things, and they showed them how to do baskets and how to, uh, you know, use stones because things didn't come out on the ship. So it was really interesting, you know sbs.com forward slash gold slash daily life on the diggings and you can read all about what the women were doing what was people were eating and drinking you can oh yes and the meat and the flies and you know i don't think it was very romantic so i'm not sure whether david's book goes into some of those more gruesome details but yeah it it, it looks pretty tough oh i think it would be but uh <laughs> and i know we spoke a little bit off air but it, it to me you know not knowing a great deal about the time period but i look back and think wow you know it must it must have must have been such a str- such a huge contrast because the land itself would have just been this you know at times hostile and barren mm, and mm. hot and and just yeah just against every sort of grain of pleasure of your body in the sense of you know there, there was no f- fridge with icy cold coke or anything like that no uh, no definitely you know, so. not yeah and look the interesting thing was that at that time of course um in health the belief was still that uh, disease was spread by bad smells or miasmas rather than from poor hygiene or contaminated water. So, you know, everybody got dysentery and typhoid and cholera and, you know, they, they had open pits of raw sewerage and in with the mining waste and all the water supplies were contaminated. So, you know, as a health person, it would have just been hideous, absolutely hideous. Probably hideous, yeah. But the, but the irony <laughs> is that that dichotomy is um, through all that, yeah. From from that hostile land, yeah. they, they're digging up rocks that'll change their lives forever. Yeah, for some, uh, that's exactly for right, some. You know. yeah, yeah, definitely for some. <laughs> um, you know, which is it's just free. And I'm glad you brought up. Uh, you know, like you mentioned Chinese immigrants, because um, yeah. I read that you know over half a million um, diggers mm-hmm. to what you know to. Uh, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Flogged, uh, flogged, <laughs> flocked to Australia. So mm-hmm. in search of treasure. So you know, um, from Britain, United States, China, Poland, Germany, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. So it's it's funny because I've always sort of had that abstract notion of you know the English sent their boats over and then from there they de- 
started to build, you know, the, the, the sort of cities that I know today. And, mm. you know, mm. and in between we invited people to come and live over here. But it's not really the case, is it? Like, no, So you've got this point where all the gold's there. Not, yeah. And so realistically the British were almost pushed out the way. It was a case of just anyone from around the world came to this new land to dig for gold. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's fun. Yeah. The Chinese people were smart in that they also uh, brought market gardens and they were selling fresh vegetables and doing a whole lot of things to really support their own people and then you know they became good um uh merchants uh as that and they were look there's a whole lot of acts that were you know really inappropriate and uh not only for the the chinese but the aboriginal people but some of this stuff you know this is what you can find in books and yes this website's really good but i was reading the Friday fisher mysteries and you know discovered that in fact um you know chinese immigrants had been some of the really early um, settlers and of course the you know the people that came out on the first European boats they were not all Anglo-Saxons so there were a whole range of people of colour who came out right from the word go. Yeah exactly Mm. and I mean the smart ones sold the uh, shovels and buckets didn't they? (laughs) That's right (laughs) or um, you know brewed the the, the alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah but anyway there we go so we've got uh so thank you to david for that uh fabulous um tale uh through his books and please have a look at his books and uh, so yeah uh, just quickly uh you know talking about the different uh sorts of you know that that melting pot of all different uh, nationalities that, that mm. came for the gold it was interesting you know i read a little bit of an article doing a bit of research for the show and uh you know talked about and this was somewhat uh, I guess uh, symbolised by the Eureka Stockade, mm-hmm. uh, but but the, there was this concept that the, all the gold diggers eventually forged a you know really strong identity, and, and that was that we look back now and was separate to the colonial British authority, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and the, so that identity was uh, centred around the principle of mateship, a bond of loyalty, equality, and solidarity, mm-hmm. and uh, so there we go. So all these different nationalities coming together formed a, a bond to sort of you know build a barrier from between them and, and, and perceived authority or, or for, uh, forced upon authority mm-hmm. and uh, build upon principles that we know now as mateship so what's more uh, valuable the gold that ended up on someone's um, janky watch or, or, or mate <laughs> or the principles of mateship, of mateship leave indeed. listeners wonder <laughs> yeah now amazingly because i thought i wonder what the price of gold is today and of course the five things that uh five top uses of gold not just in creating my precious you know (laughs) the little jewelry money is number two but in the electronic age of course did you know that your iphone most mobile phones contain about 0.034 grams of gold which is about us a dollar 82 so not a whole lot uh people still use gold on their teeth and of course you know uh, gold is used in aerospace uh, yeah, the lubrication, maintenance, and repair. There you go. Yeah, well, I mean, there is a reason why uh, people happily design boxes for you to dispose of your unwanted electronic goods. <laughs> yes, it's not because gonna... they care for the environment. <laughs> they know, they're getting them silver and gold. I and hadn't copper. thought about that, but you are absolutely right. Oh, yeah. that's what it's for. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. So, 
Well, there uh, you go. And, of course, the price of gold in Australia, uh, as of the latest I've got is May uh, 2022, uh, was two thousand four hundred seventy-one Australian dollars per ounce, which is you know it did a big blip in kind of the the twenty twelves and there was a little blip in kind of the nineteen eighties. But when they first started recording it on this particular site, it was only eighty-four dollars fifty-nine an ounce, and that was in nineteen seventy-four. So there you go. Would you want to know one other cool fact about gold? Yeah, yeah. It is the source of one of my quotes. Ah, <laughs> okay. Give us your quote. Well, I, I'll start with my quote. I like this quote. This is yeah, a funky, cool yeah, yeah. gold one. Okay, so this is um, from, well, I assume philosopher Euripides. Yeah. And the quote is as follows. Oh, Zeus, why is it you have given men clear ways of testing whether gold is counterfeit, but when it comes to men, the body carries no stamp of nature for distinguishing bad from good? I really like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that is very good. Wouldn't that be lovely? Uh, and it, it kind of goes along the line of I've often heard new parents go, why didn't this child come with a, a manual, an instruction manual? But, yeah, that's the way <laughs> it goes. Now, mine is, I guess, from a similar source, this is a Chinese proverb because I figured Chinese gold and, you know, the, the early days. Real gold is not afraid of the melting pot. Oh, of course, because it, it can only be changed. It can never yeah. be, yeah, yeah, yeah. never be yeah. boiled away. Yeah. Ah, very interesting. Nice, nice. Have you got another quote for us? No, because no, I'm sticking to the sticking rules. Sticking to one, to go very one. good. <laughs> but I, I, I had it back up just in case, but no, <laughs> I think that's good. Well, I thought now that um, as we're heading towards the, uh, the, the twilight of this episode, yep. I thought we'd maybe step into the Writer's Lounge because we may have a special guest in the Writer's Lounge today Excellent. before we uh, return to say our goodbyes. And it's a good time of the episode to sit back and have a drink, I think. Yes. Pour a few ice cubes in the glass and, uh, yeah, just, uh, just talk writing stuff in a nice relaxed atmosphere. What do you think? Love it. Let's bring it on. Oh, sorry, I was just Ooh. having a little drink of my uh, glass of something. Oh, so you're standing in line having a drink. You know, uh, bouncers won't let you in when you do that. Uh, a traveller. <laughs> it was tea, really, it was tea. See, uh, well, nowadays you get away. They say it's water, just don't smell the water bottle. Okay, I'm heading down. And here we are in the Writer's Lounge. Now, we have a very special guest in the lounge this episode, uh, a lady by the name of Hayley Walsh, who is an amazing podcaster, shall we say entrepreneur or, or broadcaster or producer. I'm not sure of the terminology, uh, but Hayley is, has her own podcast called The Right Words Podcast. And of course, you many listeners may be familiar with Hayley. Hayley's been on our podcast uh, quite a few times now, I think. And But the first thing I I want to know, Hayley, is what sort of lounge bar are you in or, or yeah, writer's lounge? What's, what's your atmosphere? What's your setting? Oh, look, I'd have to say, Darren, it's definitely got to be an, a cheesy 80s nightclub playing all the forgotten 80s hits. Ooh, definitely. Nice. Yeah. Somewhere where you can have a dance and have a good time. Okay. So what's, uh, I, I, I have some vague memories of those places. <laughs> uh, if you were to go to the bar, what sort of shooters would there be going back to the 80s? 
Oh, look, my party days were actually in the early 90s and I was a real sweet tooth. I used to love the Midorian lemonade or the old fruit tingle um, or a Southern Comfort and Coke. Yep, and today I still love a Southern Comfort and Coke. So there you go. Oh, well, normally I'd say my lounge bar or or a writer's lounge is you know, deep down in a dingy, you know, uh, dark lit room. But I wouldn't mind joining into your 80s style uh, venue this time, Hayley, because uh, I've just finished putting together an 80s mixtape, a digital version uh, for the long drive ahead uh, tomorrow. And uh, I do love a good uh, headband and puffy collars and hairspray and... uh, I love it. Yeah, and a bit of acid wash jeans, you know. And if you're really stylish, like I thought I was when I was back when I was younger, you had a matching acid wash denim jacket to go with the acid wash jeans stylish it was fantastic i thought so at the time and i uh i thank small mercies that the internet wasn't around back then and any images that may have been taken are long gone now except for the ones that burn in my memory at three in the morning but anyway so <laughs> how true yeah. so Hayley, the the uh, the right words podcast how's it going and uh look obviously you are a little bit different in the sense that you have uh guests from all around the world on your podcast i do so um dara and i started the podcast in june last year so we're coming to um the end of season two and season three will air from um early or sorry late january next year and as you said yeah i'm really lucky to get to interview authors and creative people from all over the world um and i really and while I've got the opportunity, I'd really love to thank you for hosting and recording a wonderful episode with Con Lavery, a horror author from um, Canada, which will be airing on the 30th of the 9th. So I'm really excited about that. Thank you very much. Oh, that's only days away. I know. I know. Excellent. Well, it was that super fun and it was an absolute honour to be uh, have the invitation extended to jump on your podcast. And it was you know great fun talking to Con and kind of works out well that it'll just be on the, coming on the 30th or the 9th because then just a day or two later is the beginning of my favourite month, the spooky ooky month of October. Yes, Halloween. So, there yes. we go, yeah. But I know, you know, talking to people, a lot of, you know, a lot of different authors around the world as part of your podcast. But uh, when it comes to Aussie authors, have you mm-hmm. spoken to a few Aussie authors and have any stood out for you? Have we had some um, good, good classics out there? Oh, definitely. Look, I'd have to start with the lovely Tamara Watson, who is one of my Twitter besties. Oh, okay. Um, yes, and Tamara's lots of fun. She writes um, YA fantasy, and she's up in Laidley um, in Queensland, which is about an hour and a half inland from the Gold Coast. Mm-hmm. Now, Tamara, God love her, was brave enough to be my very first guest on the ah. podcast. Neither of us had a clue what we were doing, Darren, so it was lots of fun. <laughs> we we had lots of laughs and I'd have to I'd have to say the most memorable moment from that episode if listeners want to go back and have a look it's episode number one was a very funny story about her cringeworthy first letter she ever sent to an agent oh okay do yes. tell oh, you got you got me uh, very interested now yeah look all I'm gonna say is she sort of popped on opened up her email and said hey hey agent I've written this book you're really going to love it. Look forward to hearing you. You know, look forward to hearing from you. Love, Tamara. And that's <laughs> okay. what she sent off. So it's, you know, like she, she's she got it framed, I think, somewhere to, to remind herself of how much she's learned and how far she's come. So it was oh, a pretty funny story. I was, I was going to ask, did it actually work? Because sometimes, you know, thinking outside the box can actually get you to places you never expected to be able to get to. No, I think Tamara told me she got no response. 
Oh, okay. So, yeah, oh, not surprising, oh, oh. but it's quite a funny story. Well, it's a, it's a uh, like you said, something to put on the wall and uh, no, <laughs> mark that as a road that you never go down again. Yeah, yeah, because the episode was all about, you know, finding your feet in the writing world and how we both sort of discovered the writing community um, when we first started writing our books and getting our work out there. And, you know, and just the fact that we had no idea what we were doing and everything we've learned along the way. So it's quite, even though it's very funny, it's a helpful episode, I think, for people starting out and try and navigate their way through all that confusion. So, yeah, yeah it's quite a good episode. Oh, that sounds like a really fun episode to be for, you, for your very first one, definitely. Yeah, yeah, it was lots of fun. And what about any other memorable characters? I mean, at the end of the day, I like to think that us Aussies, uh, we are the most memorable characters out of everybody. Oh, look, absolutely. The the wonderful Wayne Tunks. Um, so Wayne is a local radio host um, and he's now a good friend of mine. So he actually does the radio show on my local um, radio station oh, cool. here. Yeah, and they play all the 80s, so... That's why I love it. Fantastic. It's called My 88. Um, if anyone loves the 80s, they can uh, tune into My 88 on iHeartRadio and listen to Wayne weekdays. And he's lots of fun. So Wayne, um, I then discovered by listening to him on the radio that he'd written, uh, written a book called um, Normal or Nothing Like It. And what this book is, Darren, is a uh, compilation of short stories. Mm-hmm. The characters are all intertwined. And the one thing they all have in common is they've just turned 40. Okay. Yeah, so a bit of a comedy. Um, yeah, lots of diverse characters and, you know, being in my 40s myself, I can relate to it. So I really enjoyed the book. Um, I then reached out to Wayne and said, listen, I've got to have you on the podcast. Um, and he kindly obliged. Um, and, yeah, we, we had lots of fun. We had uh, lots of laughs. He's got his own production company. Uh, he's a playwright, a screenwriter, author, and radio host. So he's oh, a wow. really interesting character. Um, so he's, he was a wonderful guest. And he's actually raising money at the moment uh, for cancer research. He's actually dancing, um, you know, a bit of dirty dancing. I don't know what he's doing, but knowing Wayne, it'd be quite entertaining. Okay. <laughs> and he will be um, performing at the Blacktown Workers Club here in Sydney, in Western Sydney. And um, they're having an online auction. And I'd like to thank the lovely EJ Dawson, who you guys know. And oh, she has your yes. yeah her books on your um, website. And the lovely Maria P. Frino for mm-hmm. also donating some books along with me for oh, Wayne's wonderful. cause. So oh, I'd like to great. thank those girls on here, which is, yeah, very generous of them. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, stories, uh, everyone 40, I know they say life begins at 40, but I've always, well, my personal discovery was that uh, I think it just means that uh, we begin to know how to pretend to be adults at 40. Yeah, yeah, or at least create the illusion that we know what we're doing. Exactly, (laughs) yeah, exactly, how to fake it now properly. (laughs) Well, no, that's a really good cause, and um, yeah, that's that's fantastic, you know, some books are being... You know, um, put it there for up for auction. And uh, so, when when was that being held again? Uh, the auction, online auction closes on the tenth of October. Oh, still plenty of time for our listeners if they want to jump on and have a look. Absolutely. So they can go to the My Eighty Eight um, Facebook page, mm-hmm. and it's and you can see it there, and you can click the link. Um, yeah, and you can see a whole. Yeah, there's lots. Of, I think there's sixteen prizes all up, donated oh, by local businesses, cool. and this is a package of um, books by Australian authors, which is fantastic. Well, the best authors of all, yeah, definitely, absolutely, absolutely. Now, if there had to be, if if you had to pick one song that would absolutely have to be in, in at least the top ten of your '80s mixtape, what song would it be? Ooh, my favourite songs are well, my favourite bands are Def Leppard, Culture Club, and Wham. 
Okay, yeah, yeah. all good 80s. Yeah, bands, definitely. Uh, and Queen would be up there as well. So I'd have to oh, say probably Photograph by Def Leppard, um, Move Away by Culture Club, um, Freedom by Wham, and One Vision by Queen would oh, definitely be my top four. One Vision's a good one. Isn't it fantastic? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for me, it'll have to be, uh, I think, uh, it, you know, as cliche as it is, Twisted Sister, we're not going to take it. That's definitely going to be up there. Um, at, at least, uh, and I guess maybe if I wanted to be a romantic, there's something to be said for Total Eclipses of the Heart. That's always a good one. It's a big, big epic sort of uh, song. So Yeah, those powerful 80s ballads are just oh, wonderful, aren't they? They're the best, yeah. Yeah, good, you good crank it up too. and build it out in the car at the traffic lights while everyone looks at you and goes, hmm, yeah, what are they doing? Yeah, I definitely do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, my heavy metal journey started pretty much with uh, Twisted Sister uh, and that song. And I yep. got so excited by that style of music. And I still remember uh, then for Christmas, uh, and my, so my birthday's Christmas Eve. So growing up, you know, usually you had a present that was sort of your birthday and Christmas present, so to speak. And so I think I was 10, 11 when it came out. And I was allowed to, and there was this big box all wrapped up, you know, and I was allowed to, uh, shake it and feel it, you know, leading up to my birthday. And it's, you know, quite a big box and it's super heavy. And I'm thinking, oh, what is it? What is it? What is it? <laughs> and then uh, on the day, finally, you know, as you do, you can't sleep the night before. And I woke up and I'm so excited. And I undid the wrapper and it was a strange looking cardboard box. And I undid the box and there's lots of newspaper. And I went in through there and there was a brick, a literal brick in there. Well, maybe there was two bricks and a Twisted Sister cassette. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, but the part of me was devastated for a split second because I thought, I don't know, some magnificent toy. And then, of course, I realised, no, this is the best ever. This is even better. (laughs) So, and so, my, uh, and that's where my heavy metal journey began. I'll I'll blame it all on the two bricks and cassette wrapped in newspaper. Uh, But what about uh, upcoming? Mm. You mentioned the new season starting January. Yes. Do you have an idea of what sort of guests you've already got coming on or...? Oh, oh, look, I've got uh, the, the guest list for next season is already full, which is fantastic. Wow. For the whole so year, which is, is awesome. Um, I'm just trying to think. I've got, um, oh, just, just a plethora of genres. Like I've got horror, I've got memoir, I've got um, rom-com. Um, I've got a couple of guests coming back. So I've got uh, two Australians. So I've got Nathan Best and Andrew Hood both coming back. Mm-hmm. So um, Nathan is is a good story behind how I met Nathan. So my, my current partner and I went on a cruise in January 2019. And Nathan and his partner Stephanie were our um, companions at the dinner table every night on the cruise. Oh, groovy. Yeah. And then Nathan and I discovered that we were both authors, self-published authors. So we've stayed friends. They're, he's up in Cairns. Um, and he's just got a – he just landed a traditional um, contract with Big Sky Publishing for his oh, military cool. action and adventure Damien Hunter series. So really exciting for Nathan. And um, you can hear his episode uh, earlier this season, in season two, and he'll be back in season three. Well, it must be fun to be able to revisit uh, to some of your guests because obviously then, you know, you've, you've got that rapport and, and it makes a... And plus there's a lot to catch up on. Absolutely. And he'll be talking, obviously, about the new the new series, which is really exciting. So it's going to be a three book, three book series and oh, he's nice. got the contract with Big Sky Publishing. So I'm really happy for him. And, um, yeah, he'll be coming back to talk about that. Yeah, and his publishing journey. Yeah, perfect. That's that's amazing. And of course, speaking of guests coming back, to all of our amazing listeners out there, Hayley is has been so kind enough to agree to be a, a little bit of a regular, uh, shall we say, 
um, drink partaker of the Riders Lounge. Uh, troublemaker, rat troublemaker, bag. Troublemaker, rat bag, um, <laughs> <laughs> moving forward. Um, you can blame me, I can blame you when we both get stumble home at four in the morning. Um, <laughs> but of course, Hayley, one of the reasons for being a regular is to let our listeners know who is coming up on the next edition of your podcast? Because I know that people that, that listen to the Australian Book Lovers are going to love to listen to the Right Word podcast as well, or the Right Word, sorry, podcast, um, because, you know, it's all about yourself and chatting with authors as well. So, now I think you mentioned the next episode to come out will be uh, Con, why not? Yes, yes, and it's going to be, and it's it's epic. It's epic, you know, so because Darren, you and I had a wonderful chat um, and then your chat, you know, followed by your chat with Con. So I'm really excited when this episode comes out. I can't wait. Yes. Woohoo. And I'm thinking, will I be back? I think I might be back just in time. So that might be uh, because at the time of recording, I'm just about to head out for a big trek uh, in the north of Australia, uh, or at least the northern part of South Australia there. And I suspect I'll be back maybe just in time for that one. And I can kick back and have my celebration drink that I wasn't washed away by some weird supercells blowing through the Flinders Ranges uh, so that, really looking forward to that and I would ask you of course who the guest is following that but I suspect we'll save that one for your next uh, visit to the lounge which I hope is our next episode and obviously unfortunately Veronica wasn't able to have a drink with us uh, this episode no which means sadly that's, that, that means that she gets double the drinks next writer's lounge session fantastic and can I just mention um, for your listeners that the lovely Veronica Strachan and her equally beautiful daughter Cassie actually featured in uh, this current season of my podcast. They came on to talk about Chickabella, their picture book ah, series. Of and yes, so your yay. listeners can go and have a listen to that. And that was a wonderful chat with Veronica and Cassie. And do you remember off the top of your head what episode number that is? Or can they just find it under the title? Yeah, I think it was 11 or 12, but don't quote me. I think it might be episode 12 of season two. That's all right. But I could I, be telling you a lie, so they might have to go back and check. <laughs> I will check and I'll put it in the show notes, of course, as I will put a link to your uh, website and your podcast. But also, just for the listeners out there, where can they find all about Hayley Walsh and about your beautiful podcast, The Right Words Podcast? Yeah, so all my, um, I'm on across Facebook and Twitter as an author, so you can find me at Tales by Hales. Um, that's T-A-Y-L-E-S-B-Y-H-A-Y-L-E-S is my username on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and the Right Words podcast has a website, just the Right Words podcast, obviously write W-R-I-T-E um, dot com. And it's also at Right Words pod uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Now, after a big session in the Writer's Lounge and, of course, in this uh, wonderfully themed 80s disco dance studio or what nightclub, uh, whatever, or house of debauchery, whatever we want to call it. Have you got your leg warmers on, Darren? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but I may have a, uh, a fake leather look jacket. You just never know. <laughs> and maybe some moccasins that somehow got past the bouncers on the doors. Love uh, it. But let's say we wake up super hungover. Um, and it's time to try and get something in our belly and clear our heads. What would be a 1980s breakfast and what would be on TV as we recover in the Hayley Walsh house? Oh, look, I'd, ha I'd have to go with the old Maccas um, and probably Ronald McDonald advertising it on TV. Oh, there you go. Yeah. 
You don't see him much anymore, but as a kid, do you remember when he used to, you know, come around and you'd be able to go to McDonald's and see Ronald McDonald? Do you guys remember that? Uh, I do remember he's made an appearance tw- once or twice. I remember sometimes you'd see the hamburger as well. Uh, yes. They actually scared me quite a lot as a kid, to be honest. <laughs> oh, really? Things... I used to love Grimace. I thought Grimace was great. Oh, yeah, no, he was yes. cool. Yeah, definitely, yeah. But yeah, it, he wasn't it, scary. In my household, it would be leftover KFC from the fridge, which, and then uh, probably uh, Wacky Races or something on, on, the, on the cartoons in the morning as I'm wondering what I did the night before. And something I don't think you can do anymore, a complete sideline or what do you call it, a sidebar mm-hmm. uh, or tangent, because I think that KFC recipes change. If you put KFC chicken in the fridge now, it doesn't stay crispy and yummy for the morning like it used to when I was a kid. Maybe, or I just have bad memory. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I haven't noticed that. Okay. Well, there's an science experiment we can all try now. Let's go get some KFC and leave a piece in the fridge. <laughs> well, it's probably because usually when we get KFC, we've got the kids. We've got my partner's kids and they're two teenage boys, so there's no leftovers. Zilcho left, yes. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. exactly right. Yeah, there we go. Uh, but now, now you got me thinking about, I want to watch Wacky Races. But no time for that, unfortunately. That'll have to save it. But Hayley, thank you so much for being part of the Riders' Lounge. And thank you so much for agreeing to be a regular. And that means, yay, I get to talk to you regularly on the show. And that means all of our listeners get to enjoy your wonderful voice and your wonderful presence. And also learn about all the amazing guests that you've got coming up as well. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Darren. I really appreciate it. And um, also for your listeners, I'm hoping, you know, to, to do something regularly with yourself and the lovely Veronica too, um, you know, so the two podcasts can work together. It'll be fantastic. I look oh, forward to working with you. I am down 100%. You, you had me at Let's Do It. Yes. So, so your <laughs> listeners can hear you and Veronica on my podcast as well. So, yeah, very exciting. Yes, it is very exciting. Absolutely. And uh, very exciting that spring is hopefully coming soon. So if anything that spring comes with, it, yeah, it comes with flowers, it comes with warmer weather, but it also comes with a fantastic opportunity to, um, yeah, have fun with both our podcasts together, which I think is fantastic. So look out spring, look out summer. Some crazy antics are on the way. Yeah, the crazy Aussies are coming. <laughs> Yoo-hoo! Hayley, thank you so much. And I promise uh, next time, obviously, Veronica will be there. And between the two of us, we'll make your Southern Comfort and Coke a double. Beautiful. I love it. Thanks, Darren. All right. See you on the next episode. Bye. Uh, it's always tough coming out of the Riders' Lounge. Uh, yes, there's, there's always I feel like there's always room for at least two more drinks. But uh, <laughs> at the time of recording, it is still early in the afternoon. So, uh, well, at least I know I, I depart those uh, fine, relaxing atmosphere, knowing that there's another lounge to revisit next episode. But uh, there we are. Coming to the end of episode 68, who have we got? For, well, I know who we've got for episode 69. It's someone, uh, uh, two people, very, very special, very, very exciting. And I think some of our listeners may, uh, you know, be quite aware of one of our guests. So who have we got, Veronica? Indeed. We are going to be chatting with Aaron Faso, who is a TV producer and all-around celebrity, uh, as well as Michelle Scott-Tucker. And they're going to be talking about... Uh, Aaron's memoir, So Far, So Good. It is going to be amazing. and It, it is indeed. And uh, Michelle, of course, is a Macedon Rangers local. And, yeah, I can't wait to chat to them and share the interview with everybody. So that's episode 69. So stay tuned, everybody.
Yes, but uh, in the meantime, thank you so much to all of our amazing listeners for uh, enjoy. Well, I hope you enjoyed episode sixty-eight and uh, the Readers Cafe, the Writers Lounge, and a bit of news, the uh, interview with David Cairns, and all the little chit chat in between. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, and remember, we are coming into the spooky ooky month, <laughs> so if you want to get that short story in, uh, you know who'll be sitting on the other side of the computer happily putting it on the website, designing you a beautiful cover, and of course we'd also love the opportunity to maybe spice up a special episode with a few tales. But yes. uh, in the meantime... In the um, meantime, don't forget though, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Australian Books. Uh, Instagram, we are at Australian Book Lovers, and we're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. And please give us a star or a rating on your favourite podcast platform because that helps other people find us. Uh, and in fact just happened to see that on the first 40 best Australian book and writing podcasts Australian Book Lovers is currently number 21 so thank you to everybody who uh, mentioned us and who listens yeah, huge to all you. our fabulous uh, episodes so yeah brilliant I feel like we've got to get to do the Casey who is the radio guy the Casey Casey Chambers Okay, was, who, was he did the top 40 for yeah, like yeah, yeah. He 40 years do, or something yeah the guy with the really deep voice is yeah <laughs> yeah. Ah, the American guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And coming up the charts. <laughs> so Casey maybe, Kaysen. Casey Kaysen, not Casey one. Chambers. Yeah, there we Casey go. Casey Chambers <laughs> is an Australian singer. Sorry, Casey. Yeah, I was thinking, no, it wasn't quite a deep voice. It was more like Maxwell Smart, if I remember. <laughs> so we may, may have to do that. Maybe, hopefully we're racing up the charts, you know, heading towards the number one hit. But, uh, so many but thank good you, things. everybody. Yeah. yeah, really appreciate it. Um, so I guess now we have to uh, think about tagline. Indeed, indeed. Do we think about? Um... I'm thinking maybe we can be on. Uh, you and I are cowboys and cowgirls <laughs> or cow people. I don't know what the term is anymore. I'm going to say cowboys. <laughs> cow, no, uh, persons. cow persons. Cow persons. Cow uh, persons. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah, in the middle of the, the the gold fields and everything's happening and there's some people striking rich, some people are fighting and we have to yell above the din of everything and because we know of a secret place uh, and I'm trying to, we're trying to yell at each other where that secret gold mine is that we're going to go to. Mm. I don't know if that works, but I could try and make something yeah, that, work. That's a really complicated one, but okay, yeah. I'll give it a shot. Well, I don't know what gold sounds like. <laughs> well, you'd almost have to have it really crackly, as we say it, because it wouldn't be the excellent editing and sound, uh, you know, wiping things that you do that makes our episode sound so good. So maybe you need to bring some of the crackles back. Well, I will... Uh I'll paint myself to a corner. I'll see if I can... Yeah, we're on top of horses. I'll see if we're, we're in the middle of like a huge happening, um, you know, gold rushy spot in mm-hmm. Victoria where it's all happening. Yep. And, uh, you know, the, there's the flies, there's the dust, there's the hot winds. Yeah. There's all sorts. And through it all, we have to yell out that one thing that we'd love everyone to know. And that is to... That's perfect. I did that while pretending to hold my Cooper on my head, head from the wind. Well, that made the dogs get up from the window and come over to see what was wrong with me. So. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Nothing more Australian than your doggy protected, yeah. No, and apparently there are a lot of dogs on the golf field just added that final bit of uh, information. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah well, of course, you need to have someone uh, alert you if anyone's getting near because you might have 
you know, 10 years worth of uh, good living tucked into a pouch <laughs> around your waist and uh, it'd be pretty hard to sleep in those fields when if you had something like that back in those days. Yes. But on, the, on that note, everybody, thank you so much for joining us for episode 68. Really hope you join us for 69 and until then, take care. Bye for now. Let's meet again. When magic happens. Australian Book Lovers acknowledges First Nations peoples and recognises their continuous connection to country, community and to culture. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and honour the sharing of traditional stories passed down through generations. We're committed to a safe and inclusive welcome for authors and readers of all cultures and backgrounds including people of LGBTQIA plus communities and their families.